Hey, let's start the show. For Thursday, April 2nd, 2020, welcome to This Is Only a Test, the official podcast of Tested.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast this week. Hey, two weeks in a row, we got everyone here. I'm here. It's Norm. Jeremy's here. Where else are we going to be, Norm? I know. I have you locked in place. Uh, and Kishore's here. Yeah, and if you're watching the video, you can watch Jeremy clean up his office while you know, <laughs> we're recording this podcast. I'm set dressing. Easy. Really? Is that, what, is that what he's doing? He's wearing yeah. a nice t-shirt, too. Now that I have uh, full HD enabled on my camera, you can see part of my desk. I wanted to look a little nicer. You know, one of the things uh, I, I love about, I mean, they're, I'm, I'm trying to find things to appreciate about being a shelter at home, uh, but on social media, looking at various people's home studio setups, yeah. uh, uh, especially the, like, the professional correspondents, the people who are on cable news or or our reporters that who typically are either on location or have some type of fancy background like everyone's setting their own little studio setup and we've seen some behind the scenes pictures and they're very much like our setup cobbled together you know rat's nets of cables in the ground maybe two two led lights uh hey whoa 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 don't don't cast aspersions I did a lot of cable management work. I don't have a rat's nest of cables underneath my desk. It's for and, not because it's it's not appreciated. All your all your cable management is off camera, off screen. I appreciate, oh, it's appreciate your, it. your new microphone placement, Kishore. That's very professional. Yeah, staying in front or behind the mic, having the microphone in front of you, very important these days. I guess unless you're well, wearing wireless earbuds. I like being on this podcast because I, you know, all of my work calls, everyone has like the kind of flat background, kind of professional setup. And finally, I'm on a podcast with Norm where there's toys in the background, like like my background. That's important. People are like, oh, this this isn't that's not a professional science background. I disagree. I think it's I mean, important to have infinity gauntlets in the background right now. Keep it real. And this is a this is a very uh meager selection. I think like off frame three degrees in either direction are like orders of magnitude more more toys i've pared it down for the framing of this video i want to frame by godzilla on one side and vader on the other side in fact this is already a little bit too much clutter i think uh, but there's a i think um i might have retweeted it or at least liked it on twitter there's a photo of someone setting up a one of those talking head setups with you know two lights a camera and then a big um screen behind them presumably an lcd and oled and the screen had a photo i think of like the white house or some you know uh, somewhere in dc but it was uh, out of focus it was blurred intentionally and then what it looks like when they they film that segment is it looks like they're on location and it's bokeh in the back so it's portrait mode but a very analog way of doing portrait mode couldn't you just do that with a green screen 
you could, but I, I think they wanted, I, I guess you can have like real parallax or something yeah. if you're moving the camera. Okay. But it was literally just like a big LCD and they framed it and it looked like they were on location um, outside, except they were inside and with a long, long lens, except they weren't. There you go. Yeah. Lots of clever ways, but it's, it's fun to see all, all everyone's setups and we're, we all, we'll have to make do. I think over time, you'll see setups become more cluttered, maybe. <clears throat> I'm new to the Zoom uh, revolution. I, I never even heard of this app until you know, COVID-19. And I'm sorry that I missed out on the Zoom background trend and now it's not cool. <laughs> you think it's over? You think, I don't you know. Think it's really it's over. Peak, peak green screen? What, what, what do you think about the top ones? I think I saw two that, that made it to the top and then it's done, right? There was uh, the NASA engineer who did who wore a Star Trek uniform and then Zoom background, I believe it was engineering oh, that's behind good. him. That's good. And that looked really good. Yeah. Right. And then there was one who put the, uh, who memed it up and put uh, the distracted boyfriend meme and behind him, I guess. And it was the boyfriend looking at him. <laughs> and he was in the foreground and it was so uh, the boyfriend, the girlfriend and the distracted boyfriend turning around and looking at him. Nice. I, I thought the winner was screen capping uh, somebody else on the call and then setting their background as your background, like their real oh. life background. Zoomception. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 twin, the twin that the viewers never knew he had, that kind of thing. I, I saw that. That was funny. That's good. Right. I have all the music queued up. Uh, yeah, uh, but Zoom, of course, and, and we'll talk about it a little bit in tech news, or maybe even here, uh, be careful because it's been reported now that there is no end-to-end encryption. I think some people have known this for a while. Uh, the safest way to use it is probably on an iOS device where uh, it can't tap into settings that Apple won't tap it into. I think even on, on Mac, it's not in the Mac app store. It's like a thing you, you, you know, it's double click a DMG file. And on Windows, if you're using Zoom on Windows, which I am, uh, don't click links that you don't know where they're going to. Don't that's click links. Good in rule. Good, good rule in general, yeah. right? I mean, that, that's something that even, even Jeff Bezos fell victim to. So yeah, if, if you don't want your information out there, presumably, you know, with the risk of your information being out there, don't click unsolicited links. I had heard a rumor that Zoom was tracking information when you even change Windows, uh, like what application you're you're switching into. Uh, do you know if that's true? I, I don't know, but I uh, always assume every application does that. I assume my web browsers do it. I assume, I mean, for a web chatting uh, software, it's it's like it's almost one of those things that you would assume that businesses would want as a feature, so they know when employees aren't having the Zoom window in the foreground, right? That they have it in the background or they have the video chat in the background, they're not paying attention. And you know, my assumption is in the future, you're gonna get like eye tracking built into this stuff and that's gonna be super scary. Uh, I mean, the camera's already on, right? You're already sending your computer vision over, the light on your, your laptop, whatever is on. Uh, they, they all you have to do is process information and, and then they can tell, tell businesses, you know, your employee spent 30% of the meeting time looking off, off screen. Not I know we talk about eye, eye tracking a lot on this show. Uh, I'm going to call that bad use of eye tracking. I agree. I agree. Scary, scary dystopian stuff. But that's hey, just that's, because that's you're the not the. We live in. That's because you're not the employer, Kishore. Yeah, it's, the, I, it's also because I pay attention 100 percent of the time for sure. <laughs> I can see the reflection in your glasses. 
It's changing. That, that looks like a Twitter thread to me. <laughs> uh, so I know we weren't going to ask. We were talking about not asking, but I will ask anyway. How are you guys doing? <clears throat> Let me think about that. I'm okay, I think. I'm all right. Yeah, I'm all right. Supplies are okay. Have you guys gone out yet? I went to a grocery store yesterday. Uh, I'm going to talk about it in a moment of science, but uh, like it was an experience. There's still, you know, quite at least where we are in San Francisco, uh, there's still a run on like some basic goods, like certain food staples, certainly toilet paper. Still, I was a little surprised by that. I thought we'd be kind of past that by now. It's been a couple weeks, um, uh, but that that was an experience. I'm actually in a really good place. I've had a very up and down week, had a couple of like very low nights, but uh, talked to some old friends this week and started the official quarantine MCU nightly rewatch <gasps> last night. One a night? One a night. That's going to get you through almost a month. If you yeah, just there's the going to be some, yeah. There's going to be ups and downs with that too, but you know, started off pretty well with Iron Man. That movie really holds up. Are you watching it with the whole family? I'm trying. Yeah. I'm no. getting wait, some wait. rebellion internally. <laughs> Iron Man was before Incredible Hulk. Yes. Is that correct? Okay, but you are including Incredible Hulk. Not the Ang Lee one. The no, no, no. The, the I think that was just Hulk. One. Yeah, Incredible Hulk, I think, was the Edward Norton, the one he wrote. Uh, yeah, Louis Leterrier. So yes. Let me ask you just an opinion. Include Spider-Man movies or not? Oh, 100%. That's, I mean, contractually, that's MCU. But even the first one, I don't think there's any MCU people in it. Wait, the fir- like far from or not far from home, Homecoming. The first, uh, yeah, Tom Holland one. Was there any? Th- that w- that one's all Tony Stark. That w- that was one where they they let them have. Oh, you you forget, sir. I'm That's forgetting. the one where where Tony gives him the suit, takes away the suit, not the mechanical suit, but the the whole boat scene where the boat gets cut in half and Iron Man has to come in. Like Robert Downey Jr. is in that for a bunch. It opens with Civil War. Opens with Peter filming his, you know, his his take on being in Germany and being roommates with, uh, or living next door to to John Favreau in the hotel in Germany. Okay, yeah. so you're saying yes, I should include yes. it. Okay, yes. got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the things to question are to whether include things like Venom, which is not really MCU, but still Sony. Okay. Or things like Agents of Shield and 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 Inhumans, right? Things like Jeremy that. is done with this yeah. conversation. But can I tell you what I'm doing to survive? What are you uh, doing? It, it's not watching Marvel movies yet. It might come to that. But uh, uh, did I ever tell you that we guys that we got a ping pong table? No. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is amazing. Like when when uh, around like the beginning of March when the, you know it was first starting to look grim, like it was going to be grim eventually. My wife had this just prescient moment of brilliance where, where she said, let's get the ping pong table because we've been playing on our small dining room table with, it, with a little like modular net that you extend across of it. So mm-hmm. we ordered a real table like from Amazon. Was it fold up in half? Yes. And nowadays okay. I would feel very bad about that because the, like, the shippers are way overbooked. Like my UPS driver says he has three trucks, three people doing his route, which is crazy. Like it's just it's out of control. But it wasn't back then, so I'm, I'm okay with it. And we got the table. We put it basically where we normally put our guests when they sleep. And we've been playing every single day 
and it's awesome. Like my, my whole family is getting really good at ping pong, particularly my, my 13 year old. And it's, it's one, it's one form of exercise that we get. Some days it's actually the only form of exercise, but it's, it's fantastic. It's a wonderful escape uh, from, you know, the normal. And if you don't have the space for a ping pong table, you can always play VR ping pong, which is also. It's true. You can even 3D print an attachment. You did it. Oh, how's, how's it? I have not tried it. But I, I would like to, you, you put the touch controller, I don't have it here, but you put the touch controller in here and it, uh, it looks funky, but the, the developer of Eleven, the table tennis game, added official support for this. So you can 3D print your you know, holder, put your controller in there and play like, it's supposed to have the real, as close as you can get, uh, you know, center balance as a real racket. Right, right. And you have some experience with table tennis, right? Well, as do you. I played you at uh, Maker Fair once and you got some game. I, I mean, that's just in the DNA. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I actually was in a state tournament in high school. Yeah, which doesn't, it only means I went to a state tournament. Anybody can do that. But uh, I did make it through one round. So I, I got a little game. How yeah. much does a ping pong table go for if you uh, wanted to buy one? Between three and $400. This is, this was on uh, wheels and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, I like it. It's a nice, nice table. A lot of assembly required? About, about 20 minutes. Pretty okay. easy. Yeah, okay. pretty easy. Yeah. I would, I mean, I wouldn't recommend it now, as I said, um, you know. Uh, it's a big but, box. It's very taxing on the, on the yeah. UPS truck, on the FedEx truck. Well, it was delivered by a separate company, but it was on Amazon. Oh. And, uh, but yeah, it's, if you can find one on Craigslist, you know, you, if you feel like you can go out safely, um, it's a good idea. It's fantastic. I'm not sure Craigslist is a good idea right now. You don't want to like... send people out? Yeah. I guess that's not an essential thing, is it? Uh, so ping pong table? No, yeah. I'm going to go no. <laughs> I, I've lost perspective, Kishore. We play it every day. And it's, it's fantastic for me. You should do live stream tournaments. Yeah. Yeah. Some, yeah some, some, but yeah, that's, that's cool. All right. Well, glad to, uh, glad to hear you're both doing well. And I guess that means it's time to move on to, as I delay and I queue up the music. What is our, what is our thing? Where, where is it? I don't know if I have it. What? Top story? Yeah. I don't know if I have the, the cue. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> top story this week. Um, we have a Discord now. This is, uh, this is more tested related as a top story, but I know we're late to the game, and we have a lot of friends who have been using Discord. Will runs a Discord server. Steve Lynn, in front of the show, works at Discord. Uh, but because Adam's been doing live streams uh, every week and YouTube chat has not been reliable, uh, we decided to spin up a Discord. And I think we can put a link in the show notes. It'll be both on the site and on YouTube. Uh, but it's, it's been up for just a couple of days and it's pretty well populated. We have a couple hundred people there hanging out. Uh, we're still figuring out exactly what channels to set up. Um, we've heard a lot of different varying opinions about whether to be very granular, you know, treat it like a forum and have lots of granular threads or have just kind of catch all buckets. Um, because if you start splitting up people, then it kind of kills off a channel. Uh, so I jumped into the discord yesterday because I was catching the end of Adam's live stream and I wanted to see what questions and it, there were so many people in there asking questions. I, I'm going to, I'm going to jump to the front of the line and ask for a Discord channel request because yeah, it was that. one of my favorite things from the site. 
which is the post what you're making thread yeah. from the old uh, forums on the site. I love that. And like people dropping in pictures of what they're making. Oh, that's and cool. I think especially now when, when so many people are at home and probably making stuff in their shop, uh, this is probably a great time for something like that. Yeah, we'll probably do something like a, a show and tell channel just for people to, to show off projects, something like a Q&A channel for asking for help from the community, um, things for, you know, maybe for VR and games and, and news and well, we'll, we'll, we're still, still figuring it out. Uh, and I know there's, it's very powerful platform, lots of things we can do in terms of like bots and emojis and all that stuff. So we're, 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 we're newbies in Discord, but like you said, like yesterday, there were over 800 people there during the live stream and still over 500 now. So uh, again, the link will be below. Anyone can, can jump in. Um, and, and you're going to keep using it there. for questions during the live streams. At Adam's yes. Group. Yes. I think that's going to be our primary use for it is we'll be active in there on Tuesdays, 1 p.m. Pacific when Adam does live streams um, to, to pull questions from there. Um, we may even start a channel or a thread for people to post uh, the podcast outro pieces. Oh, nice. Uh, one last question on this, just because you talked about it on that somewhat gory, still untitled this week. Uh, is Adam going to keep doing live streams even with his finger damaged? I mean, he did one yesterday, so yes. Why would that stop Adam Savage? I, I mean, very, his, good point. <laughs> and, and he's not, uh, the live stream he did yesterday wasn't a full build. It was just Q&A. And I think some of the builds, I mean, he's still working. He's still working in the shop. So uh, I think you'll definitely see him still doing live streams, still working on projects. Maybe not things that require a lot of middle finger dexterity uh, for a little bit, but it seems to be healing well. I still haven't looked at a picture of his, his injured finger, um, and I'd hope not to have to look at it. Will you be checking in on Discord daily, Norm? Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to leave it on. I mean, I'm just going to leave it yeah. on and check. I'm up late, and it's, it's, I mean, it's always fun to see who's up at you know, 1, 2 a.m. Pacific time, you know, whether it's folks over on the other side of the world or people who are just night owls. That's super cool. Yeah, and again, very good platform. I don't know why we, I mean, we just didn't have the bandwidth to spin one up. But. Does everybody know what it is? I mean, are we just assuming that? It's basically like an online chat. It's IRC for people over 45. With uh, IRC with the uh, better UI. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's online chat with a, with a log so you can scroll back and see what people said hours <laughs> or days ago. I think the, the, the most, the thing that it's most akin to for professionals is probably Slack. It's like public Slack, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and with I, additional I how, like voice and video chat features too. That's Slack the other that. thing, right? It, it, also, people have been using it to play games together. You can pop into, you know, you, if you're in a big server and you pop into a specific game channel then you can group up with people and use it as a way to form a small group and do voice chat when you're playing you know call of duty battlefield whatever 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 the kids play the Fortnite, right that's what they still play yeah, i'm sure i'm, I'm sure, sure many do yeah 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 um but the real piece of news i want to talk about as top story is something that's actually technology news uh jeremy you bought a laptop last year right i did i bought a dell uh, a Dell uh, 15 inch laptop. Did you, do, uh, uh, did you do that whole deep dive when you think about buying a new computer or laptop where you look at the state of the hardware for all the specs of like mobile GPUs, mobile CPUs? I think by your factors? standards, no. Um, I remember asking you and Will for recommendations and you both said the Dell 13 inch 
And that was actually a good recommendation because that had been updated, whereas the 15 had not, but I right. wanted that bigger screen and I, I got the 15. I, it's, if I were doing it today, I'd probably get the laptop you have, which seems like a much better one, but what's the news? And if I was to buy a laptop, let's say two weeks from now, I would not even get the laptop I have. Okay. Because there's a whole new, there's a, there's a big shift in laptop hardware. So uh, as a little bit of a recap, um, if you think of like Apple as the analogy, because I know that's probably the easiest way to differentiate between the classes of laptops, Apple has the Air, the Pro 13, and then the Pro 16, right? And the thing between those computers, all three of those computers use a different class of Intel processor. And they're basically measured by the TDP, thermal power design. Uh, thermal design power, whatever, whatever TDP stands for, uh, where the MacBook Air is fanless, very low wattage. Like the newest one uses, I believe, a seven, nan a seven uh, TDP at the lowest state, uh, 10 or 11. Uh, and is then fanless accurate? I believe MacBook Air is still fanless. That's crazy. I, okay. I, I, let, me, let me double check on that. Now, now you have me questioning. Yeah, I wouldn't put money on that. Technically, I guess, not fanless. It's, hmm. It's, hmm. it's no, okay. it has a fan. MacBook Air has a fan. Okay. But it uses a processor that was designed for fanless designs. Okay. Let's put it that way. Fair. Very low power consumption, long battery life. Um, and uh, the new MacBook Air, which was uh, updated uh, like a few weeks ago, uses Intel's latest low power low wattage processor, uh, Ice Lake. It's a 10 nanometer process. And Step Up, which is the MacBook 13 inch, which is what you have, Jeremy, what you have, Kishore, and also what uh, presumably is in the same, uh, the same processor that's used in your Dell, in the Dell 13, is the U-Class processor. This is the standard best bang for your buck uh, processor. It's Four cores at max, most of them sold as two cores, can, can spin up to relatively high frequency, um, but it gives you long battery life, but still enough cores and enough clock speed for you know, productivity and some gaming. Like you could definitely game on that with the discrete GPU. On the high end, what I have on um, this laptop, uh, which is the HP Omen 15, uh, as well as what's on like the MacBook 16 inch is on the Intel side, they're H class processors. And these are the ones that go up to, you know, six or eight cores. Uh, they are up to 45 watts TDP, not great battery life typically, uh, but they're really meant to be workstations that you plug in. Most of them have discrete GPUs, you know, from NVIDIA or AMD, um, you know, like a 2060 or one of those Max-Q GPUs but you could play like real games on this. You could even do 144 Hertz gaming on a laptop. You could play at easily over 1080p, high settings. You could play VR on these, like no problem. Wow. And the form factor for these laptops have gotten pretty small. They're still about like five pounds, four to five pounds, but you can get like a 15 inch laptop that's under five pounds that you can play VR on that works as like a great travel workstation. Uh, and they're priced around like $1,500 to $2,000 is, is what this class of laptop typically is. On the Apple side, like closer to $2,000 for sure. Just released last week or announced last week and reviewed this week is AMD's entry into this high-end. It's their Ryzen 
4,000 class APUs. AMD has APUs because they're like combination GPU, CPUs. Um, and this is based on the Zen 2 architecture, which was on their desktop side, the Threadrippers that were late last year, that was like up to like 32 cores. Same architecture, seven nanometer process, incredible power efficiency. Also on this class, 45 watts. And the performance is unbelievable. What people are saying, it's not even high frequency. These are, you know, they go up to like 4.4 gigahertz and they start at like 2.9 or 3 gigahertz and, and turbo up. But we're talking about at the minimum, um, they have uh, six cores, go up to eight cores, 16 threads, and they are blowing the Intel processors away. Wow. And at not only uh, blowing them away in performance, but at the form factor, because they are so efficient at the seven nanometer design, you're talking about the performance you'd get from a big five pound laptop in the size of your MacBook Pro 13 inch. What? Yeah. Are they super noisy? They're not super noisy. That's the thing too. They're incredibly power efficient. Battery life has been good. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of them, like they're, they're built into the slim designs. So some of them are built into 25 watt uh, design laptops, which are like in that MacBook, smaller MacBook Pro size. And they are blowing away all the benchmarks for encoding, for video editing, uh, even for gaming, although you're going to need to pair it with discrete GPU. Uh, but it really now is a matter of what laptop manufacturers are adopting these and what partners AMD has in getting these into actual systems. And they're in MSI, uh, Dell, I wanna say has uh, Dell, Asus, Acer, and MSI are the ones that are launching in, in, uh, in two weeks. So none from HP yet, but it's these, these OEMs who have worked with AMD for the past year, getting these laptops ready. These are the ones to look out for. Did you say how price compares to the Intel equivalents? Uh, I don't know if there's pricing yet. Uh, I'd have to look into that. But sub 2000? Uh, but sub 2000. Well, sub, like, these are going to be $1,500 laptops, essentially. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, news on the Intel side, though, is that uh, I guess today's April 2nd. So just today, this morning, they also announced their response to this. And they're going a, a slightly different tack. They're not going for power efficiency. They're sticking with on, I believe, Comet Lake H, which is the successor. This is the, the one that's in the current MacBook Pro. And this laptop is the 9000 series H processor, uh, H being the high-end one. And this next one will be the 10,000 series. Uh, still 45 watts, 14 nanometer process. But their whole thing is, yes, eight cores, but up to over five gigahertz. So they have laptops that I think I have a slide with a briefing that I took. Are we going to see the equivalent of a chip manufacturer's diss track is like, we have a response and it's number of fours. (laughs) It's, it's, you know, um, I don't know if I can share the slide, but I can say that on the very high end, it's an unlock processor. You can overclock it and it goes up to 5.3 gigahertz turbo, eight cores, 45 Watts uh, thermal design power. Uh, base speed of 2.4 gigahertz. So, you know, they think it'll have good battery life if you're running at the most base level, uh, but it'll go easily out of this entire line. Six chips, five of the chips, or four of the chips go above five gigahertz. 
on a laptop with overclocking potential. Uh, the other big advantage that Intel has is Thunderbolt 3. And, and so that's where people feel like Apple is less likely to switch over from Intel to AMD, even though a lot of, a lot of people are making the analysts, or a lot of analysts are making the argument that Apple should consider switching over to the Ryzen 4000 line for the next generation of MacBook Pros. Uh, but Intel, or Apple is so invested in uh, the USB-C port and uh, Thunderbolt that um, they would need to license it separately and then design that and built in. It would be maybe less efficient to, to do that. So presumably Intel or Apple is going to stick with Intel for the rest of this year. And then who knows what's going to go on with Apple and designing their own uh, yeah. ARM chips for laptops. Do we get any sense from these releases about how supply is going to be disrupted with everything that's happening and what the timing means? Because I understand what you're saying about like they're going with it this year, but what is this year even mean anymore with how the manufacturing cycles are just you know completely out of whack I, I think people have asked that and i think that these were designed and manufactured ahead enough and in terms of the high end the quantities are enough that they don't expect it to be uh prohibitive uh, in the in the in the supply chain uh maybe some of the budget ones don't know exactly how they're bidding but some of these processors i mean they've they've been working on these for a long time but some of these are, you know, they've been ready to go and ready to ship out in a couple of weeks. And some of these will be in the sub $1,000 category for the Ryzen's. So uh, I think it's a matter of who they partnered with. And my assumption is that when Intel says, you know, you'll see these chips in, you know, a hundred different configurations across X number of dozens of OEMs, they have on the contractual side, probably, uh, offered incentives or, or ways to lock in OEMs to using their chips um, and, and use that as a way to, you know, to have a competitive advantage. Uh, but my hope is that demand from the consumer after seeing some of these benchmarks will, will convince OEMs that it's in their best interest to really diversify and give options. And because I would love, you know, to see Razer, laptops and HP laptops um, and other, other manufacturers uh, take advantage of the Ryzen chips and pair those with you know, great GPUs and give us really, really good laptop options. I'll be curious to see where those bottlenecks are though, Kishore, this year. I mean, I have a feeling it will certainly be towards the, like the, the small guys, the people doing Kickstarters who need to you know, get their stuff manufactured. Um, and also the stuff that needs just tremendous volume, like the next iPhone. Like, but the, it seems like this might be more of a sweet spot where it's a large-scale developer making a relatively you know, medium to small number of processors. I mean, and I don't think we've gotten a handle on what demand is going to look like in what we kind of anticipate is going to be a global recession of some kind. Right. Uh, and again, this is a more niche thing. Maybe it's a little bit more proof to that that this demand because it's niche is, is going to be there. But I think when it comes to the iPhone, holy cow, I think all bets are, are kind of off on what that's going to look like. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think people at the end of this year, I mean, clamoring to spend a thousand dollars on a new phone. That too. <laughs> right. There's a lot of ways to spend a thousand dollars that maybe in, uh, that, that you can make improve your life in a lot of different ways, especially if you're at home, but who knows? Like a lot of people I'm sure are looking to buy webcams these days. Right, like there are lots of consumer electronics that and, and microphones that are, are and industries that are booming because people are staying at home or finding more value out of 
different types of tech. Yeah, absolutely. Amazon was sold out of webcams as of about two or three weeks ago. Uh, There's least... full on price gouging going on with webcams right now. Is there? Yeah. Yeah. They're like going for like 250, 300 bucks oh my God. from resellers, which is awful. Yeah. Like webcams, Web- webcams before all this were, were like 30 to 50 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So that does it for top story. I want to throw some tech out there because I guess we are technically a technology podcast, but here we go with. You know, as I was thinking earlier when we were playing the intro song, I wonder, probably no one has tried this, but I should try this. I should try in Half-Life Alex to play part of our theme on the piano. I'm going to do that maybe later today. Do you know, you've got past that part, Jerry. Wait, 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 wait. You buried the lead here. You can play piano? There is a functional piano. No, no. I know you can play it in the game, but you can play it. Oh, I mean, I thought we, we've talked about this. I well, can play piano. I discovered that when we covered the Nintendo Labo and we built a piano and Norm uh, proceeded to play chopsticks on it. Probably something more complicated but, than chopsticks. Yeah, chop, I mean, chopsticks <laughs> is perfect. For, the, the Labo keyboard was, it was only like, what, an octave and a half at most? There's only so many things you could do on the Labo keyboard. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you do the Rugrats theme. That's an easy one to do. You do it with two fingers. But yeah, I, we're still waiting for that sheet music. But yes, the uh, the key, uh, the piano in Half-Life Alex, it's a full piano. Yeah. You can glide your finger down the entire keyboard or uh, all, all, the, uh, all the keys and uh, hear, you know, all the it's scales. really well done. Like I almost feel like that, I expected when I hit a key for it to sound like they were just pitching up and down the same sample, but mm-hmm. it's really well done. I mean, it almost sounds like they're unique samples for every key. And it, it, it's like, like I, I sat at that and played uh, chopsticks myself. It's, um, remember when we played, um, what was it, the Medal of Honor demo back before Oculus Connect last year, Jeremy? Yeah. And it, it's a game that we, you know, Respawn's doing. We actually haven't heard a lot about it since Connect, but it's, presumably still supposed to come out this year. Uh, but one of the levels was playing uh, like a, a, a password to unlock like a secret door using yeah. a piano. I remember being impressed by that. But it's going to, I bet the engineers there are tweaking their piano <laughs> algorithms now that the, the bar has been raised right. by Half-Life Alex. Yeah. It wasn't even essential to the gameplay. It was just something that people could discover and use. And, you know, that's, that's just... I'll- all the time the Valve has. I don't know. Props to the Medal of Honor team, though, because making it essential to gameplay, I thought, was a great idea. Yes, although I could also see it as a, a trade-off of being a frustrating thing, too, because if, you, if people don't have the right, you know, I guess it's, it's an Oculus-exclusive game, so you have, you have the touch controllers, and so you can use the, the individual, you know, the, the index fingers. Right. Um, not the index controllers, but your actual index fingers yeah. to play, but if you miss a key, then you have to actually, you know, read the notes and, and, get, and get it right. And so it's, <laughs> it's not just pressing a button or typing in a keypad, which a lot of games have done uh, in VR for unlocking a door or something. Um, but okay, pop culture. Um, what's this uh, with John Krasinski? 
I know he's, uh, he's pushed back the release of Quiet Place 2, but what's going on? I mean, have you seen the new morning show that is taking the internet by storm? It's John Krasinski's new show, Some Good News. Uh, this actually started because he, uh, I think, just put out a tweet being like, I could use some good news right now. And so many people responded with good news that he turned it into a video segment. Uh, and the first one he released happened to coincide with the um, anniversary of The Office coming out. Uh, and so I guess he he had his connection to Steve Carell. They did a show together a while ago and uh, had him on. And they, they kind of swapped stories about the early days. Uh, but my favorite thing is, like, he highlighted a bunch of stories from that tweet thread and then actually got on Zoom with a couple people that were part of those stories. Uh, and I don't know, like in this, maybe I'm just uh, a little sentimental and <laughs> a little susceptible to this kind of stuff, but it was awesome. I uh, cried. I cried when I watched it. My wife cried when she watched it. Uh, they, you know, I, it was the first time that I'd even been aware of the number of people who were celebrating hospital workers, um, which last night became more of a local thing. But uh, I saw this a couple of days ago and there were just like thousands of people honking horns and, and cheering outside of hospitals and it's very moving it's it's exactly the kind of thing that you don't see on cnn and msnbc and fox uh, it's it is some good news and it was very welcome yeah i saw a video from chicago i think it was two nights ago so after they they clapped for the healthcare workers going in they turned it into a downtown dance party and just like t- full-on turned on like dance beats and we're having like rooftop dance parties from uh, appropriate distances. <laughs> so you mean like a like a middle school dance, uh, <laughs> right? Everyone lying against the walls, sparse dance floor, people appropriate yeah. distance away from each other. Only the only the women were dancing. All the guys were up against the wall. Yeah, total right. middle school. Right. Yeah, yeah. Empire State Building lit up with a uh, like, like a siren. A siren. Yeah, or or the Eye of Sauron, however you want to look at it, however you want to interpret it. But, yeah, not the Eye of Sauron. It's not my interpretation of that. Also, if we're going to have, you know, the uh, the Salesforce Tower in San Francisco actually did the Eye of Sauron, was the Eye of Sauron for Halloween last year. So, and, and actually has a display, look like the eye. The Empire State Building looking like a siren is not the Eye of Sauron. I'm sorry. Right. Hey, by the way, Speaking of good news, can we celebrate the fact that April Fools got canceled yesterday and just how good that feels? Like we're recording this on April Fools Day and nothing is is coming out. And you know what? That's great. April Fools was stupid. And like it was just a bunch of mean-spirited stuff. This seems gr- great. I think this should be permanent. Like let's get rid of that day. March yeah. 32nd, right here. That's what I'm saying, is we make it March 32nd, cancel <laughs> April 1st going forward. I'm, I'm, I, I think I completely agree. I, I think that you know, Google not having pranks and telling their people not doing the pranks, yes. I think it's because people took April Fool's too far and too seriously. Levity is great, but the way that people transformed the the quote-unquote holiday into something to be a little more snarky and and malicious and yeah that was was something i i never enjoyed i think you guys might be a little down 
on April Fool's right now, which is completely justifiable. And I agree that we should not celebrate it this year. And who knows if we should celebrate it next year. But it has been in the past. I have had a good time with it. There's a number of Think Geek products that came out of April Fool's Day, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. And, uh, you know, there's always the occasional laugh that I've gotten from the corporate uh, mega structures who have, you know, made a fake product. Think Geek RIP, I think, did, was the best, was, was something I actually look forward to every year. You know, the thing that they would do for April Fool's, which was really just product testing, right? Let the it turned out that way, bag, yeah. Right? And then they ended up, they could turn those into real products. And... Uh, again, that's a, also a little bit of a cynical way to look at it, but it was, it was a fun thing because, it, you know, it's these creative people and doing a twist on pop culture. I still wish I had that Tonton slipping bag. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me move on to, actually, I apologize. I have now Slack sounds coming on. Um, we're going to talk about some delays, some movie stuff. This was maybe the the latest, I don't know if it's the last of the big delays, but Sony um, has pushed many of its summer releases uh, to not only the fall, but also to next year. So a movie that we uh, had been looking very forward to, Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, which was supposed to be released early July or mid-July, uh, is now scheduled for release of March of 2021. So a whole year from now. It's kind of crazy, yeah. Uh, as well as the midsummer release for uh, Morbius, the Sony uh, Marvel again non MCU movie, but Marvel licensed character, just like uh, Venom, uh, that is going to be pushed to uh, March as well in 2021. Have either of you taken advantage of the on-demand uh, movies from that were playing in theaters coming uh, on demand and available at home? I watched Onward, uh, which <clears throat> I would I wouldn't have done if I'd I know. known if I'd known that it was coming to Disney Plus next week. <laughs> but yeah. I, I paid twenty bucks, and uh, I don't regret it. It's, I actually I don't know if we talked much about our anticipation for Onward, but I was uh, much more excited about Soul, and I still am, I think. But uh, I I was really pleasantly surprised by it. I think we everybody in, who's associated with Tested would enjoy it because of its fantasy roots. And it's, um, it's just got some really good humor in it. It's just very lighthearted, but it's, uh, I loved it. And I, I, you know, I'm happy to have bought it. It's I, exactly I just, the kind of film that I've missed the theatrical experience for. Um, now, maybe I have no excuse because it was in theaters. I just didn't get a chance to see it in theaters. But it's the kind of film where I was in the same boat as you, Jeremy, where the trailers didn't get me excited about this film. Uh, and it was one from our reports that Pixar was very happy with. They'd finished well ahead of time. It wasn't a film that, you know, like we've heard stories about Incredibles 2 or even Toy Story where they were rushing to the end and tweaking things and polishing things. And those films, you know, were, were basically, there's money in the bag, right? Incredibles 2 was going to make a yeah. billion dollars. Toy Story 4 was going to make a billion dollars in amazing films. Uh, but Onward was a, a unique, as a new IP, it was a new story. And so maybe in the trailers, it looked a little less timeless than I'd come to expect from a, a Pixar film. Maybe it, it's not fair to say, because uh, I don't want to call DreamWorks films, you know, to, to, to shoehorn them into this, this category of animated films, but a little bit DreamWorks-y in terms of it being maybe a little more uh, tied to modern references, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think if, I, if it, was, it was a movie that I'd saw in theaters, I would have 
being able to give it more of a chance. But I did the same thing as you, rented it, put it on. You bought it. Bought it, yeah. put it on, and was, when I, wasn't able to get through it because I couldn't pay that full attention to it because I'm also in a household with a baby. Oh, wow. <clears throat> yeah. And no, so we had to stop. We had to stop like a third of the way through. My youngest So you think that's good? Go ahead. I was going to say, so you think that's going to be true for any movie? That wasn't uh, about Onward, and it's just this format. Yeah, no, absolutely true for any movie, but this, but because of that circumstance, right, especially a kid's film, it's like I've ruined the experience of enjoying Onward for myself because I didn't have the theater to keep me focused and to make an event out of it, um, which the movie deserved. Well, uh, on, uh, just to continue to, like your narrative, if you have the time, I highly recommend picking it up where you left off because the movie really sticks the landing. Like it's, it, ha- it goes up and down, but man, it, it nails it in the end. Um, my youngest baby is 10. And so we were able to make it all the way through the hour and a half. Yeah. And it's one of those things where um, I did the same thing with that Vin Diesel movie, Bloodshot. And that's a movie where I could feel less invested in. And I felt like watching it at home, totally fine. You know, I have a good TV, good sound system. Uh, I, I could appreciate for what it is, but it, the temptation to be distracted either because of the child or because of a phone or because of anything else is just so great in the house. And it's a discipline thing. I completely understand that. Um, it's, you know, everyone's going to have their own trade-offs and the convenience of watching at home is undeniable uh, but there's something about the, the theatrical experience of watching in a shared audience in a packed audience that i, I miss honestly you know the, the, everyone's but, focused attention on the screen i mean that's going to come back but i think there's a certain kind of movie that this is perfect for like movies that i wouldn't go out to the theater for just because of of the time or the expense of going to the theater uh and i have a you know i love the theater experience. I don't want to see theaters go away, but I think there's a lot more movies I would watch at home, even at like a 10, 15, $20 price point that I wouldn't see otherwise, or I'd wait until they're out in rental uh, that I think this format's great for. I mean, like not to channel Jeremy here, but uh, you know, in my house, there's less people talking during movies and uh uh, and, uh, you know, I, the soda is a little cheaper and more plentiful and uh, the, the popcorn is, is just as good. So I, I think, especially with, you know, how most people have really nice uh, TVs at this point, uh, that I, I think there's a lot, a lot of movies. And I think especially about like the Oscar type movies that aren't the, the epic kind of I need to be in a crowded theater to watch this kind of thing. Uh, God, Martin Scorsese is going to be up in my mentions, like saying this, isn't he? <laughs> He's a subscriber. <laughs> I, I, it's again, it's different for everyone. What I found was that I could not resist, not even be on my phone, but talking and nudging during a movie and, and saying things. And it's something that in a theater I wouldn't do. And sometimes I like I nudge and like you know tell Dan, ah, I really like this moment in a theater, but watching at home. Like we paused it for bathroom break, for a snack break. And you can't do that in the theater. Jeremy uh, wouldn't allow that. And I, I, I'm like, I, wouldn't, I, I felt so bad about doing it because I, I thought it was disrespectful to the movie. And yet you did it anyway. Because, of the, because I could. Uh, because I, I could. I, I really, I, so little. I re, I'm really in this moment realizing that 
I have so rarely lost respect for you, Norm. <laughs> <laughs> but man, I, I, I honestly, I, like in my family, I, I, I am horrible. I am a horrible person when we watch movies because they will, they will ask a question, a child, a child will ask a question about what happened on screen and I will berate them. <laughs> I will say, no, we are not asking questions. We are watching the movie and we are finding out the answers to your questions. And uh, uh, it's, uh, I, I enforce that, that full-on attention. And if anybody is to get up and go to the bathroom, there is no pausing the movie. You got to respect the integrity of the film. Uh, when, when you guys went to theaters to watch movies, were you building like the list of things in your head you wanted to talk about after the movie or things to tweet because it happens to me all the time like you know watch a big movie and i'm like oh my god i gotta keep in mind these are the things i really i love this moment this it was a cool reference here that was a great piece of dialogue whatever i want to talk to someone about those things i'm building this like list in my head and so often by the end of the movie i've forgotten like half of those things so like the first time he was like jot down my notes or send a tweet and like i want to talk about these things yeah and because watching it at home, I can pause. With great power comes this amazing and awesome responsibility to shut up. I've, re- I, I've fallen victim to like pausing and saying, ooh, I want to talk about that. What just happened on screen for three minutes huh. before we resume? Yeah. And it's, again, 100% my fault. But like, I, maybe it's that these streaming services, if you're paying, I, I know they would never do this, but... Maybe it's a mode you can turn on. Maybe it's opt-in, where once you press start, you can't <laughs> pause it. <laughs> I love it. I mean, there's always VR, right? There's always big screen. Uh, if, if they could get first-run movies, uh, maybe that's the solution to all, all of these problems. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I, it's anti-choice and anti-consumer to, to do it that way. And you know, the reason they do it is because of a licensing thing. But that restriction, I think, is, is part of the, the movie experience. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, and personally, I, <clears throat> uh, I'd be, you know, obviously it would be a sad thing on for temporarily for, for the whole industry, but I, I would be okay if we just switched to first run movies at home. Like I would, for all the reasons, Kishore mentioned, um, I, I would, I would do that. I would pay whatever the price is and I'd watch the movies at home. And maybe there's, there's a solution like you're saying where you can't pause it. I don't know, but, uh, I, I think that that would, I'd be fine with that. What about a certification? You have to like scan your room, send in your TV metadata. I'm like, okay, your, your sound system and your TV are, are qualified yeah. to, to do this, to, to, to be a little mini theater. Yeah, they set up an eye tracking thing to count yeah. the number of eyes watching. Norm is pitching filmmaker mode where literally somebody from the film industry sits there and watches <laughs> you watch the movie. And make sure you sit through the credits too. Oh yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I, I guess that's what end scene credits are. That, and you know what? That is a, a lot of filmmakers don't like, like the the end scene stingers because they think it's a gimmick and they think the film should begin and end in the merits of its, you know, of its of the runtime and not have to rely on this whole shared universe thing. It's all about but, getting people to watch the credits. It, well, it's not, but it is also right. It, it, the intention isn't to do that because you've seen studios now put the mid credit scene in and the mid credit yeah. scene just lets you pe- watch all the, the, like the top of top billing actors and first assistant director gets nothing, right? Not even a special treatment for the title. Then it's just the scrolling text. Um, 
but one of the uh the the just the externalities of it is that it's forced people to stick through the credits and and people have kind of organically developed you know not only recognition for the blocking of the credits and like you know the oh you know who is the best board gripped or or who who was the you know this assistant to that person and develop their own rituals i should say for watching the credits but i think it really is a, a thing that you know people should do more of. And what the thing I hated most was also when movies were broadcast on TV. Do you remember how like the, they would like squeeze the credits down to a third of the screen and basically play an ad for what's coming up next oh, yeah. and speed up the credits. Even like, Netflix does that. Been, yeah, 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 yeah. Even Netflix does that and, and shrinks the credits down. And I think that's just, that's, that's not good, good practice. Um, one strategy that theaters are uh, employing to even stay afloat is um, is a new initiative uh, from this company uh, Kino Kino Marquee, and what it's doing. If you go to um, I think the website is I'm not sure if there's a website actually, um, but on some theaters that have partnered with Kino Marquee, you can opt to send part of your streaming proceed to a specific theater what done that's awesome done and done like if if i have con- control on that even if it's like some paltry percentage like five percent that would be great wait do they have to do they have to otherwise have hosted that film i'm not sure exactly how the 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 policy and the contract works but 150 theaters um are going to start partnering with it including alamo draft house uh which you know big austin cineplex I started with 12 theaters, uh, Lamel Theaters, Lamel. I don't know, that's a theater chain. Uh, but uh, they're doing a film, an art, these are art house films, so art house theaters. Wow. But the, for $12, Kino Marquis is the streaming site, I guess, is, is uh, you can search at K-I-N-O, Kino Marquis. Uh, the Cannes Grand Jury Prize winner from last year, uh, which was this movie called, ooh, I can't even pronounce this. Bakura, B-A- That means it's good. If you can't pronounce it, it's going to be good. Lots of leaves and feathers around the movie poster. Uh, but you can stream the movie for 12 bucks. but they split the profits between the rights holder and also local theaters. And well, you select which theater. Love it. And I think that's, that's a fantastic way uh, to do it. I know AMC has their own like streaming service and, and like, I don't know how that works. I don't know if they're, they're allocating funds for their local chains and, and their workers, but if there's any way to support small theaters that way and ways for those theaters to get on board with this type, yeah, I, I 100% down. I even you know, throw a couple extra bucks um, if I know it's directly going to the theater and keeping those, those businesses afloat. Uh, last bit of kind of movie club news, AFI, American, American Film Institute, is also launching their own little movie club, and they got filmmakers like Spielberg involved. He, uh, he made a short video to promote this, and their first film is The Wizard of Oz. Uh, what do you mean their first film? So I think this is, um, there's, I don't know if they're streaming the film, they're selecting the films with creating, uh, for the world to watch together, they're calling it a communal viewing experience, and the idea is kind of like a book club, mm-hmm. but a film club. 
And so special guests like Spielberg will post introductions and discussion things on their website and social media. And then people go to AFI.com slash movie club hmm. um, to, to engage in discussion about it. But I believe you do have to find the film yourself. Okay. But it's a kind of like a book club way of, you know, of building a community over watching classic films. This must have exist already. I, I'm, I'm sure it does, but this is run, you know, this has involvement with filmmakers like Spielberg and yeah. presumably other filmmakers and their contributions, I think, would make it a fun, fun discussion. Sure. Um, and in movie uh, green lighting news, this is kind of interesting. Have you guys seen that Ryan Reynolds is now full video game mode? Yes. So Ryan Reynolds has that, um, is it a Taika Waititi movie? Or maybe is it just Taika Waititi who's starring in it? Um, but he has that uh, ba, 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 that movie coming out, Free Guy. That's not out yet. Okay, that's coming out. I mean, we'll see when that comes out. I mean, everything is on delay, basically. But Again, yeah, it was presumably it was a schedule for July third. My expectation that's a Sean Levy movie. Uh, probably will be delayed. But that's the one where he plays an NPC in a MMO, right? In a GTA online yeah. style, style game. Uh, well, he's also signed on. He's really leaning into like pop culture favorites. Uh, but he's signed on to make a Dragon's Lair. Dragon's Lair. Yes. Okay, Jeremy, you have to talk to us about the video game for the people that have, don't know what Dragon's Lair is. Oh, they, they don't exist. They, do they? They don't exist. Yes, they, they exist. Oh my gosh, Dragon's Lair. This man. is a life-changing video game when I saw it in the arcade. So. Right. It was, a, it's a, it was a Don Bluth animated video game. where it, Arcade game? Yes, arcade. Yeah. And it was um, you know, full cartoon, basically, from the guy who made The Secret of Nim and um, incredible, like, after he left Disney, uh, he went on and made this game, which was a laser disc game, right? That was, you played in the arcade, and uh, it was super simple controls, a joystick, four directions, and a button for using your sword. And it was a timing game where you saw a flash of light and you had to move towards it, or and you basically memorized how to get through every single puzzle, and eventually rescue the princess and kill the dragon. Um, just a just an incredible game at the time. It was like the first fifty cent video game arcade game that I can remember. Which people, is expensive. People happily played it. Um, yeah, it, it's hard to find these days because the laser disc player is broken down. Uh, but people have solved that with new hardware. In any case, it's like a beloved video game, arcade game, because it was so unique. Uh, the graphics think- were beyond anything that even today that, the, well, maybe you could get away with it today, but that you know, computers were capable of. When you say graphics, you mean animation, the amount of work. It was yeah. choose your own adventure uh, in a video format where you're watching animation and to use modern analogy the, the bander snatching of it right it was you you pr- timed and pressed your stick or the action button to either continue the story or die yeah basically did at any point did, at any point did it fork where you would be able to continue in two separate ways and not die or was it just die or continue it's just die or continue i don't remember there being any forks um yeah, it was just it was one segment after another, and, and some, as I recall, like some cabinets had them in different sequences. So you just, but you, you'd memorize the game. Anybody who knows the game can get through it in a single life. Now it's just a, it's a memorization game. 
But, but was, most people back then, like I think most people remember spending a lot of money just getting through the first dozen or so sequences. It, and it was the most expensive game at the arcade. And yeah. so it was definitely, I, there was always a line at, at my childhood arcade for it. Uh, and uh, I remember seeing, watching the first person get through that game and how I was like, oh my God, I just watched the entire video game. It was like early <laughs> Twitch, except it was in person, you know? It was incredible. It's been uh, ported to everything. Like I, I, I'd yeah. be surprised if people haven't had the opportunity to play it before. It's, it's incredible. Um, I mean, the gameplay itself is antiquated, but it, it was at the time it just it, absolutely marvelous to see. I mean, you could watch Perfect the playthrough on, on YouTube. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the playthrough, in terms of animation time, it's like 10 minutes. Like, it's 10 minutes really? of, of actual game time. I mean, it's a lot of animation because they have the animate all death sequences, too. Yeah. Oh, no. You're, like, shattering my, my memory <laughs> of this game where I was like, like it was so long. Because there are very short sequences. Like, you'd enter a room and see a dragon or something, and then you'd have to dodge or die. And if you didn't dodge, you died. I remember, I remember seeing it for the first time in 1983 when it came out. And I was at an arcade. Uh, well, I was visiting my grandmother in the mountains, North Carolina. And uh, I remember the arcade operator walked up to it and like fixed it and put some credits into it. So I didn't have to pay. And I, I played like two games. And I, this voice behind me said, you know, he didn't put all those credits in there just for you. <laughs> like, one of my only memories from being nine. But it was, uh, yeah. And so was it, it some creepy old guy behind you or is it another kid at least? <laughs> it was probably a kid who was like 12, right? But then I remember also Ricky Schroeder had one on Silver Spoons. You know, he had one in like his dad's room. And uh, I was very envious. The hero of the game, Dirk Daring. Dirk the Daring, yeah. And that is who presumably Ryan Reynolds will play in the live action adaptation of the game. Don Bluth is a producer on this. The question is, if it's live action, will they incorporate Don Bluth animation into it? Like if kind of a Who Framed Roger Rabbit style, some mm -hmm. mixed live action, that, I think that'd be cool. And would they have a choose your own venture type of storyline? Like what could the storyline be to tap into what was so iconic about this game? Oh, interesting. Like have they? I'm sure that it will be released in theaters, but if it were a Netflix thing, they could do a Bandersnatch kind of choose your own adventure thing to it. That would be interesting. It, it, it is. It is a Netflix thing. Oh, it is a Netflix thing. It is a Netflix thing. Oh, well, maybe it is going to be an interactive thing. I mean, it has to be, right? That's, that's what the assumption is. I it's did not know be, that. That's no, awesome. It's, it's, it's Netflix. Uh, you know, and, uh, I'm of two minds about it because then it's not a movie. What do you care? You don't even sit through the whole thing. <laughs> You're interacting with your pause button in regular movies anyway. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, what a bird. Wow. <laughs> I hope that when they design this, there will be a, a storyline. I mean, they, they can't have it where you're just watching Ryan Reynolds die, you know, 85 times. Are you sure about that? Throughout, throughout the 90 minute thing. <laughs> that like every sounds like a movie to me. Just, like, that's just gimmicky, right? Like if, if the main story. That and, also and sounds like a Ryan Reynolds movie. <laughs> Something that's gimmicky. Right? I guess that could be a way they would make this, right? It's a, here's a 90 minute story where if you watch the 90 minute story, it's fine. 
It's a story of a, a, a night going on an adventure. But what makes it novel for Netflix is that if you at any point, you the viewer, choose to press the B option, you watch him die in that sequence. And the movie is scripted as such where there's dozens of opportunities to watch the death path. Right. Right? That's, so you could, you could watch it straight through and not have to activate the A path, the correct path, and just watch a normal movie. But the option is to watch the, the death path if you want at any point. Right? That's, that's how I would, that, uh, I, I could see this being made. You could do a lot of different things. You could make real consequences so that you can't go back. Like you're, you have to, you're stuck with your choices. Oh, I mean, we, we talked about that being an option for Bandersnatch and they never, they wouldn't have the guts to do it. No. You'd have to go to your friend's house and try a different path. You have to create a bunch of different Netflix profiles. Right. <laughs> Dummy profile A. Yeah. Profile B, delete profile, new profile, relaunch Bandersnatch. Or wow. I was excited when this was coming to the theater. I, I can't wait now. I mean, if this really is interactive, I, just, I, I trust them to have a good idea and pull it off. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, last couple bits. Uh, oh, wow. We have a lot of pop culture left. Uh, did you guys see the Voyager 4K? fan remaster no this is kind of super cool so uh in terms of star trek remasters we know the story of next generation and the huge costly and laborious effort it took to get star trek next generation on in hd and we're very thankful for that effort right cbs viacom spent the money in season one to basically pull the film and re-edited the show using the original film material because it was shot on film, converted to tape, edited on tape, and so they had to redo all the effects that were done on tape in low resolution for, for the, the film masters. It was, uh, it was a process that was, uh, didn't have to do for next, or the original series because the original series was shot on film, edited on film. Uh, it did make money in the end for, for CBS Viacom, but they did it for all seven seasons. So that's why on Netflix and on, I guess, BBC America, you can watch in the United States, you can watch Star Trek Next Generation in HD and it looks so good. DS9 never got that, right? DS9, I believe, was shot on video and, or maybe it wasn't shot on video, but at least the money wasn't there to, uh, because Next Generation didn't recoup those expenses. There was, and DS9 was less popular in mainstream. Uh, they never got a chance to remaster it. And so what, all we did get was uh, the, one, the, the, the two scenes that we saw in the DS9 documentary that Kishore, you and I saw. Right? And on the big screen and even at home, and that uh, documentary is streaming now, uh, it, that scene looks fantastic. It's a beautiful battle scene. And it's one of the few ways, and it's a very, again, costly effort, as they explained. It was like the thing that everyone was waiting for when watching the documentary, even though the documentary itself, well worth watching, lots of great things. Uh, but we'll, we just assume we'll never see a full DS9 remaster. When we get to Voyager, even less of a chance, even less popular among Star Trek fans. Uh, at that point, I don't even know if it was shot on film, because it was late 90s. Um, but there is hope. And it comes in the form of AI machine learning. And so someone on YouTube, uh, you can Google the YouTube account, we'll try to link this below. Uh, Billy Richard, Richard, has taken the DVD source of Voyager and remastered it 
using machine learning and basically analyze the episodes and then artificially added resolution to things to make it look like it's in 4K. And there are very short clips, like two minute clips on his YouTube channel from a few of the episodes. He said he's done about uh, five episodes so far. And the biggest issue isn't the compute time, it's actually the audio syncing, because apparently Voyager was mastered or uh, released in DVD at a variable frame rate. And so the audio is off sync and that has to be manually matched up. I don't know exactly how that works, but the results look really good. And you guys should watch this. Yeah, I'm checking it out now. It's phenomenal. There's some telltale signs of machine learning, machine learned mastering, like around the eyes. You can kind of tell there's some like some fuzziness and some of the, the spaceship stuff is not good at all because the machine learning just isn't good at recognizing that kind of detail that's supposed to be in explosions and detail supposed to be in like the actual physical or even low res CG models. But for people, when you're talking about adding details in hair, hand, fabric of clothing, of the uniforms, uh, even the set environments, it's, it's not bad. No, like, I mean, I would especially watch the whole series like this. Considering that this is done by a fan, is that right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. And, and with today's technology, this is clearly something that's going to be possible in the near future, but on a large scale. Yeah, it's something that under, you know, under scrutiny, you can tell it's almost like there's some processing that you get, some you know, edge enhancement kind of processing you get on TVs or on streaming things that thing, you know, TVs and streaming services have done to compensate for low bitrate streaming. Yeah. But if you're just watching 40 minutes of an episode, this is much more enjoyable experience from even this two-minute clip than watching the 480, you know, DVD rip. And I don't think I don't think anybody will care except for the audiophile equivalent. You know, it's like MP3 has proved that people prefer convenience to quality. Yeah, yeah. So this gives us hope that it may not be out today, but you know, hopefully, someone over at at uh, at uh, Paramount CBS takes a look at this and makes the case that they could develop a workflow to take what they have internally as their video masters, run it through some AI, take a look at the results, and maybe put that out. Wow. I pay for that. I pay to stream that. Uh, some, uh, ooh, more TV stuff. This may be only relevant to uh, Kishore, you and me, but have you seen that the NBA is in, in lieu of NBA games, they're having players play NBA 2K? Yes, I saw that announcement. I am all for uh, pro athletes getting on Twitch and streaming their video games. So there, a lot of pro athletes are noted video game hogs. Yeah. And not just like active players, but some of them are pretty darn good too. Not like pro level, but so I'm all for seeing them play. And frankly, I don't need it to be NBA 2K. Just anything would be awesome. The NBA 2K just adds a level of hilarity here. But like, man, give me pro athletes playing stream night and listening to them, you know, chirp each other on stream. That's the, first of all, this is not just Twitch. This is ESPN. Like last week, we, we loosely mentioned it, but Fox Sports is doing um, uh, the iRacing. So they're having real NASCAR drivers participate in simulated virtual racing and I think they have actual, you know, there's enough technology with the screens, with the haptic feedback on the steering. It's not going to be obviously the same as being in a NASCAR, right, driving, driving your donuts, uh, but turning left. But you, 
you will get some sense of the endurance and some of the, you know, because the simulation is good enough on, on these games. Have you followed uh, that at all? Competition. I'm curious to know if, if the results are similar to what we've seen in real life. Well, I bet that the results are that the, the people who do the iRacing, you know, not full-time, but as a dedicated hobby yeah. are probably better than the NASCAR drivers because they know the nuances of the software, mm-hmm. right? And the drivers probably are overcompensating because they're factoring in all the things that they wouldn't have to factor in um, in this simulation that they do when they're driving a real car, right? Uh, but it's fun that they're still taking the muscle memory and not only the muscle memory, but the intellectual, institutional memory of endurance of the you know of the hardware of their you know of the sport, um, and and then embracing the digital representation of it. And that's where I think the NBA stuff could be useful. You know, obviously, playing basketball on a court is completely different than playing it physically than holding a, a game pad, right? But here it's ESPN, it's players like Kishore said who are fans of the the and are good at the video game version and what i'm here for isn't the 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 back and forth you know sniping on each other it's the strategy you know the the kind of breakdown that they they have like some of the best things to watch are nba players and veterans do analysis on on play-by-play and if they're able to do that while playing a video game and give you insight into you know their their actual moment-to-moment decision making you know, the game sense they have when they're on the basketball court, that's actually, that could be really fun to watch. They're not doing anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just try it. It'll be bad probably right out the gate, but they'll get better at it. Like, you just got to put in reps. Yeah. Um, And then, uh, last two bits, uh, pop culture, heads up, if you are still in the market to buy Lego and toys, Lego uh, just announced a Fast and Furious tie-in. This um, it's not an April Fool's joke. It is the official Lego Technic Fast and Furious uh, Dodge Charger. It's Dom Toretto. This is Vin Diesel's 1970s Dodge Charger RT taken from the Fast and Furious films. It's a Technic set, and um, it uh, is going to be in store at the end of April. Okay, and the next story. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> if you're not into that, then Hot Toys, makers of uh, fine high-end pop culture collectibles, has their own Baby Yoda, own child. Life-size Baby Yoda. Sideshow Collectibles had one that was announced a couple months ago, $350. I think has been widely popular. Hasn't shipped yet. Won't ship until the end of this year. This is something where I think definitely supply chain, manufacturing overseas is going to come into a consideration in terms of you know um, dealing with the pandemic, but Hot Toys, based out of Hong Kong, has their own, and this one is posable, and also has interchangeable ears, which is divisive in the collectibles community right now. Mm. Interchangeable ears for ears peeking down or up, kind of like a puppy, uh, but the seam in the prototype pictures is very apparent, and that has made some people unhappy. So this Life is not size, a- yeah. Not animatronic, right? No, no, no. Not animatronic, not a soft puppet. These are still plastic, hard plastic, but at least there will be some posability with moving the hand. And cool. You know, there's, it's cut and sew, so fabric for the clothes. And Baby Yoda is about you know, 30, 30 some odd inches tall. So life size in relation to the prop used in the film. 
And that does it for pop culture. Let me see if I have the next segment, music and uh, do. And I'm muted. God damn it. This is tough, Jeremy. I don't know how you do it every week. Can I tell you my, my favorite Zoom hack while he's doing this? Yeah. Is to take a screenshot of yourself uh, uh, on the call and then set it as your background and then walk away and it still looks like you're on the call. I've done that <laughs> twice during this podcast so far and it, I can't tell if you've noticed or not. No. What? <laughs> That's great. I mean, All right. on our screen, you would be very small. So, you no, know, there's, there's no way to tell. That's great. You speeded us? I did, yeah. I've done it twice. I went to get water once, and then uh, we had a package delivery. Oh, my God. That's good stuff, man. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the second time I did it, I didn't do it as well because I, like, left my chair spinning a little bit, and it kind of interrupted the background. Um, but uh, advanced Zoom. Welcome Wait. to the class, my friends. Don't tell – you got to do it at least one more time during the show, and I got to see if I can, I can point it out. Uh, That's great. It. God, I, I, I wonder if I should tell my 13-year-old or not. He's in Zoom classes all day long. No, you should not. <laughs> <laughs> this dangerous power. Again, yeah. great power yeah. comes great responsibility. Hey, you uh, we'll know, get, oh, go through, go ahead. we didn't mention one piece of pop culture news, which is um, OXM Magazine has shut down. I guess you have that in tech news, I just noticed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the year that the, the next Xbox is coming out. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to see them go. They were part of our old company, Future Publishing, uh, formerly Imagine Media. And uh, yeah. gosh, I mean, I was, I was never on their team, but I produced their podcast way, way back uh, 13 years ago. And we just found a couple of our favorite episodes from, from those days, about Ryan McCaffrey and Dan Amrick, who are still in the games industry. Uh, Ryan's at IGN, um, and Dan's at uh, Ubisoft, I believe. And, uh, right? No, he's yeah. on the, rock, he's on the uh, guitar. Rocksmith. Yeah, Rocksmith Yeah, team. Anyway, um, we found our favorite episodes from those uh, days and posted them onto SoundCloud. So I tweeted that if you want to hear it. Amazing show. It was just like, incredible award show where we did all this uh, fake in line for the, on the red carpet, talking to celebrities in the games industry. It was a, it was a ton of fun to, to do. I, I posted on Twitter uh, at Jareware. So I'll miss OXM and um, I'll always remember them fondly. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sad about it, but I mean, to be honest, I hadn't picked up or read one of those magazines in, in quite a long time, especially since they, they moved the publishing staff over uh, to the UK version. And so yeah. I didn't feel that same connection as the, you know, the US. And then, you know, the end of the era for me really was when, when Nintendo Power shut down, right? Mm -hmm. That was the one that I grew up with as a kid and then saw revived and then probably has more relevance today than, than ever with the Switch being so popular and, you know, obviously everyone's talking about Animal Crossing. Uh, but yeah, it's still sad to see it go. And good that you archived all that stuff. Oh, I didn't. They were, it was on archive.org. <laughs> so, thank goodness I was able to find it. You know, it's, it's so funny. Uh, I, I did this kind of walk back through memory lane um, this well, last week because Half-Life Alex came out and I, oh, there goes Kishore. Nice try. Nice try. Oh, I didn't try it that time. <laughs> he walked away. Uh, but Half-Life Alex came out and I was just 
inundated with half-life nostalgia, right? And one yeah. of the best things you can do if you're uh, after, like once you're done with Alex, and I know we'll talk about this, Jeremy, mm. you will, I felt withdrawal from it because it was so anticipated, not just that 13 year gap between waiting for the game, but also since the announcement and we'd been so involved with covering it and been looking forward to it being a culmination of not only you know the latest chapter in Half-Life, but for this next big chapter for, for VR, uh, that after publishing the review, and I've gone back and played levels again and, and gone back on a regular basis as people are discovering new things to do in the game, I just wanted more Half-Life. It felt like I wanted to go back, take a time machine back to 2006, 2007. Hmm. And so one of the best ways you can do that is Noclip has uh, a documentary they put out over a year ago about uh, the Half-Life franchise. And they did this. This is um, Daniel Dwyer's uh, YouTube channel. Um, and they make wonderful video game documentaries. Uh, but this is like a almost two hour long documentary where they did a road trip across America and visiting. They weren't able to go to Valve because Valve didn't want to speak about Half-Life at that time, understandably, two years ago because they were working on Alex, right? Uh, but they visited a lot of, they visited Gearbox, right? So Randy Pitchford, uh, which who did the uh, Opposing Force um, uh, expansion pack and also did some work on the you know, Counter-Strike you know, port uh, as well as um, uh, Santa Monica Studios for Sony, the God of War folks, because a lot of influential game developers and people from the modding community, people from the esports world about what it was like back in 98 when Half-Life came out. And then from that to the modding world, because it was Half-Life that gave birth to esports as we know it, right? Counter-Strike, Day of Defeat, right? Uh, Team Fortress, Team Fortress 2, all that stuff. Uh, to the release of Half-Life 2 and all the hacking that went around that. Because Jeremy, you remember there, you, you were in, in the games industry at the time, right, with Half-Life 2 when that came out? Of course. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I started as gamer right after the original Half-Life came out. But I, you know, to say they started esports, I think that's a little generous. I mean, certainly Quake was doing death matches long before you know, but they, Half-Life and the modding world around Half-Life yeah, gave absolutely. birth to the type of esports games we have now. Right. Quake yep. was not designed for esports. Counter Strike made esports work. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was all because when Half Life 1 shipped, they included like the level editor. Like World, uh, Worldcraft was, was part of it. And it, everyone could access the assets and make their own levels. But anyway, uh, it's a really great documentary. It's really funny because um, uh, Jeff Keeley is uh, interviewed there and he has famously done the uh, you know final hours of Half-Life, Half-Life 2. He's working on the final hours of Half-Life Alex. Uh, but they interview him and ask him about what's, you know, what does he think is going to happen next with, with Half-Life. Yeah. Stone Cold Poker Face, he goes, who knows? <laughs> Maybe they're done with Half-Life. But it's very clear watching in retrospect that he is at least aware of Half-Life Alex development. Uh, but I was going back and thinking about all the times that you know we've covered Half-Life, because I reviewed Orange Box for PC Gamer, and you know Day of Defeat and Counter-Strike uh, Source, and I didn't have any of those issues. The magazines, and none of that stuff is well archived anywhere. There are a bunch of repositories you can find online um, of people who've scanned magazines, but it's it's like it's not anywhere. I'd like dig up old hard drives with my like 
pork files and PDFs of those issues that I have um, to look at some of the things they wrote back then. About well, the certainly game. all of the reviews, most of the reviews, at least until the, at least the mid 2000s are archived on archive.org. You just have to know how to find it. For, used, for OXM? Uh, no, I'm thinking for PC Gamer. Oh, really? Um, yeah. For, so you, you, we used to host the PC Gamer Reviews database on the website and uh, it's still on archive.org. You just have to figure it out. You know, that was my first job was updating that database. <laughs> well, it's, it, your work exists still, thanks yeah, to the hard work. Terrible CMS and literally opening Quark Express files, copying, pasting text Yuck. From, from those files and then typing in a score and uploading it into a FileMaker Pro database yeah. file. Unfortunately, the whole magazines aren't. And sometimes seeing the advertisements is more of a time capsule than the reviews themselves. Yeah, the actual page turn experience of when they decided to put an ad in the middle of a, 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 a feature and all the, the things that, all the funny personality-based things that were littered throughout the magazine and the design work. It's actually a lot of design work that yeah. the, the art directors put into laying out every issue, which is cut and paste. It was a lot, a lot of good, good design. Anyway, uh, tying into nostalgia with that era of video gaming and PC gaming, um, Jedi Academy is, was released uh, for uh, PS4 and for Nintendo Switch. Now, do you remember this? Star Wars, colon, Jedi Knight, colon, Jedi Academy. Right. So this is the sequel to Jedi Outcast. Yes, which was Jedi Knight 2 which was right. Star Wars Dark Forces 2, the Dark Forces Jedi Knight sequel, Jedi Outcast. <laughs> Phew. Yes, Jedi Academy was made by the same team that made Outcast, and it was uh, Raven Software. Raven, yeah, that's right. And um, still well regarded as having some of the best multiplayer lightsaber battles that you could have uh, on PCs at the time. And that multiplayer has made it over to the port on PS4 and on Switch. And the funny thing is the back end for the multiplayer is essentially PC server hardware. And people who own the PC game that you can get, I believe, on Steam or Origin can actually manually type in an IP and join the Switch and PS4 games. What could possibly go wrong? And the funny thing is veteran Jedi Academy PC gamers from Jedis. the old days. Jedis, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the old guard, the old Republic. Knights of the old Jedi Academy have come out of the woodwork and are now schooling the Switch and PS4 players in multiplayer games. Yeah, apparently it's, they're just decimating them. I mean, one, they have the mouse and keyboard, which is arguably more responsive than a, a, you know, an analog stick. But they also have mastered the game. And I actually never got into this game, but I understand that it was a nuanced game. Like the mechanics of combat were pretty, you know, there was a steep learning curve to them. So it's not like the Switch owners are picking it up and getting good at it right away. So it, take, it took years of mastery on top of these more accurate controls. Uh, yeah, it's not a fair thing. And apparently the, uh, the developer of the port, Aspire, they have uh, they've said they're going to fix this somehow, some, some way. They're either, I mean, you, you don't want them to turn off crossplay, but maybe right. they'll have to silo the console players yeah. against the, uh, the PC players. Yeah, yeah. But that's, I think that was hilarious. And again, 
like these these classic games coming out on consoles or or modern day uh, mobile hardware is pretty neat. Yes. Um, we'll get through uh, some of these quickly. Apple has bought Dark Sky, so it's a very popular weather app, very hyper local uh, in terms of the, you know if, if if you have either of you use Dark Sky. What is it? I have I have used it. I, I wonder if it means the this purchase means that Darksky will no longer be available on Android or not. That's exactly what it means. The API for Darksky is closing uh, at the end of 2021. So the Android app will exist for another year and a half, uh, but Apple it will be iOS exclusive essentially. A, what what's so good about it? Um, it's just it's just localized. So like especially you know where we live here where the climate where I live versus where Jeremy lives can be, you know, 10 degree difference in temperature, even though we live like a mile apart. Uh, it gives you that kind of microclimate information. And then I think it pulls in data from uh, weather stations people have, have set up across the city huh. instead of just like one kind of big predictive net. Yeah. And, you know, if weather app and also some of the other default applications on iOS are, not done in-house. Uh, the apps are made, but the data is pulled from sources like Yahoo, right? And right now, I think iOS uh, 8, since iOS 8, uh, Weather had used Weather Channel data. And now with the purchase of Dark Sky, they're going to be able to use the existing relationships this developer has built with local channels and local stations uh, to pull data from. Um, but a lot of different third-party apps had tapped into that API as well, and they just won't be able to. So basically, they, they bought not only technology, but they bought the relationships to get that data and the existing data sets that they've stored. Okay. Um, on the Mac side as well, uh, this is uh, uh, kind of interesting. Dropbox, you guys use Dropbox on the Mac? I have it. I actually didn't know about this limitation though. But previously Dropbox would not allow you to sync your desktop folder. You could only sync a specific Dropbox folder. Yeah. And the new version of Dropbox Beta for Mac, if you can find it, allows for syncing of desktop documents and downloads. Um, I wonder, I'm, is this that? Did they hack this in, and is Apple going to shut it down, or did they get permission to do it? My guess is that Apple's going to shut it down. Is that Apple? Apple has always seen. Uh, well, it depends on the power dynamics here, because you know, there's been that long story of uh, Apple wanting to buy Dropbox in the very early, early days. And the right. Steve Jobs told the founders, you guys aren't a product, you guys are a feature. And they refused to sell, and now Dropbox is hugely successful and has a big, you know, multi-billion dollar business uh, doing what it does really well. Um, and iCloud has been Apple's way to kind of move into that space and with obviously better integration into things like iOS, uh, but maybe not so on macOS. So... This could be one of those things where Apple could just make a decision and it might feel very anti-competitive to make iCloud the preferred way or the easier way to sync files across the cloud um, than Dropbox. Dropbox isn't helping itself with some of its latest versions. I'm going to use this as a way to complain about Dropbox uh, because the default for new Dropbox installations isn't to sync everything, is selective syncing. And I think this is a problem that they've come into with people just having too much stuff and the wireless and even wired infrastructure of our internet just not having being able to handle people installing new computers and having to sync hundreds of gigabytes you know across multiple devices 
uh, and it does clog up if you're buying a laptop and most laptops come with what half a terabyte of storage or a terabyte, you know, as a, as a, as a base skew, uh, people have hundreds of gigs, um, in their Dropbox if they're paying for a personal annual oh. account and it's, it's just, it feels unnecessary for a lot of people, but I still prefer it that way. But that is their revenue model. Like they, they give you two gigabytes for free in the hopes yeah. that you will run out. It's, it's just like a Slack's revenue model where, where you basically get like two weeks of backlog for free. And if you want to search for your old conversations, you have to pay. I think that what they're finding is that it's people are even, that the, the minimum, they should either raise the minimum and start you off with like 100 gigs or something, but that people are finding that even more, in, not, not sufficient. And then they're switching to alternatives like OneDrive, or, or iCloud or Google Drive or other ways to sync mm. uh, because those companies have also have a lot of server options, source storage and cloud storage options. And the way by having selective sync be a default, then it'll feel like you can make more out of a free Dropbox account. So you'll be stuck in the ecosystem longer and then they can get you to upgrade later. Because yeah. if, if you're asked up, if you feel like you have to upgrade you know, a month into using Dropbox, you're probably not going to use Dropbox. You use something else. Uh, Samsung is going to stop making LCDs, is a report from Reuters, uh, by the end of this year. Samsung Display. So this is the arm of Samsung that this supplies LCDs to uh, OEMs. Uh, but demands for LCD panels uh, and having too much supply, demand falling, having too much supply, means that they uh, are going to supply ordered LCDs to their customers by the end of the year and then just fix on OLEDs or a next generation. Great. Seems about right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know what this means for, um, for like Apple, which still makes iPhones with LCDs and who they're gonna get their supply from, maybe probably LG. Uh, but I mean, that's a crazy thing to think about, right? There's they're no still... money in it. There's no money in LCDs, they're, they're commodities. I mean, they're so cheap. You go to Best Buy, it's insane what you can get for you know, less than $500. Absolutely. Completely agree, but there are still so many consumer electronics from that that are more affordable because the displays on them are so cheap for those manufacturers to and buy. And there will in. still be people manufacturing them, just not Samsung. Just not Samsung, I guess. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know, like whether it's the 3D printers or camcorders or anything, having an LCD full LCD display seems like a you know it's it's a no brainer because cost wise and power wise, it's so low. I would hate for those things to go away because everyone's moving to OLED, because OLED still is expensive. Yeah. And for those type of displays, the burn-in is more of an issue because you're having static things being displayed more often than not in the UI. And then uh, last bit, uh, Epic, Epic Games has launched their own publishing label. And so they've signed on developers. And here's an interesting thing. They are letting developers retain all the IP and full creative control. Wow. Epic Games Publishing will cover up to 100% of developing costs, including expenses like QA, localization, and marketing. And you have to distribute with an Epic, of course. And developers will earn 50% of all profits once the costs are recouped. Ouch. So, so nope, nope. A, you, you get nothing until the profits are recouped, or until the expenses. Yes, but you get to how you get you know however much 
money you need to make a game, which is yeah. could be millions and millions of dollars, keep you, keeping people employed. Yeah. Huh. I mean, all those Fortnite skins should uh, got to go somewhere. So all that money, I guess, is going into this. I like. Does is the Epic publishing ecosystem so powerful that we're going to see a lot of of game publishers go this route? Um, I, I think it makes sense for game publishers to do it on a non-exclusive basis. So they signed on like Remedy, which made Control and the Max Payne games, Play Dead, they did uh, Limbo and Inside, and Gen Design, uh, which did uh, Last Guardian. So if you're a studio like Remedy and you've built up this really big team to make a game like Control, Control comes out, it was exclusive on Epic Games, so they have existing relationships there, but it'll be on like Steam and other places, you know, a year after release. Uh, you got to keep, you want to, it's in your best interest, right? Or in the interest of your employees to keep them on staff, right? And developers scale up and scale down all the time. It sucks. It's the same for any type of studio, creative studio, like movie businesses, effects houses. It's a, it's a problem, right? If this is a way for them to keep employees on board and working on maybe a smaller project or a side project, or maybe even other big project that's fully funded, by epic publishing that's awesome right it doesn't mean that that's the only thing they're making and if they have you know they have plenty of ideas they could still make something that's a triple a game and distribute it in you know with better terms after release or make a deal with microsoft or make a deal with whatever platform to put something out on consoles but this then allows them to keep people employed and put out more work and put out more games and all but, this is thanks to Fortnite. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the success of Unreal, I guess, to some extent. I mean, uh, those things are kind of hand in hand at this point. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. I mean, they, they certainly didn't publish Control or any of those other games. This is a, a new level of involvement. I, I wonder well, what they, happens. They, bought, they had exclusive rights to distribute Control. Yeah, but I think they, sure paid, they paid for it. They did pay for that, but they don't have to recoup anything for that. Like, right. That's, and so I wonder what happens in that period between release and when the company starts to get revenues, when the developer starts to get revenues, because that, what do they do to, to meet payroll then? I guess they roll into another development maybe. Yeah. But, uh, that could yeah. be a, that could be a long time before costs are recouped. And, and if they're thinking of it as an experiment, right? Epic is banking on the quality of these games Right, and the quality of these developers to get people interested not only on the Epic platform to download them, but also to have people pay 50 or 60 bucks to, to buy these games, uh, then it's, it's their risk. But it's, they have so much money now. I mean, they're giving developers better share yeah. uh, of some of the stuff on, on their platforms. They're, they've put a $100 million mega grant program. Um, and so, I mean, again, this is all because the microtransaction model and free-to-play has done so well for the biggest video game in the world right now because, you know, regularly played video game in the world uh, that they can afford to do that. It's I mean, a little I, bit of sharing the ball. Maybe I'm, not, maybe I'm missing the big picture here. I mean, I guess some, develop, some publishers pay for 100% of the development costs and then don't give the developers anything else, right? I mean, maybe that's like a, a games are bought and paid for. Like they own that game. I guess then they would own the intellectual property. Like that would be their game then. Right. But I mean, it's certainly in the traditional sense, you know, when Microsoft does an exclusive, right, they pay for development costs and 
unless they're owned, because at that point, you can be owned in house, right? Microsoft can buy a studio, right? And then they own it and they have to manage that PL and they have to make it worth the while. But that's risky because the people at the studio, if they don't make a game and if it's not promoted properly on a platform, that studio can go out of business. You've heard the horror stories, you've seen the horror stories. Um, if you are a developer that's being that's signed exclusive to release your game on a platform, I'm, I'm sure it's not all production costs, development costs covered. You cover your own costs, you get an upfront for an exclusive in advance, that kind of thing, or a percentage. Uh, and then whatever happens behind the scenes for uh, the revenue share, the profit sharing is maybe there is none. Maybe it's that what Microsoft or Sony paid for was banking on people buying more Xboxes or PS4s um, and, and signing on to their ecosystem. Put it on the list of things to ask Mike Mike about next time he's on the show. I, I'd be very curious to hear from developers about whether or not they're, uh, they, they like this deal or not. Yeah. yeah. My, my guess is that the developers do like it. Um, it's just that it's unproven. And you know, any time they can find a way to get a grant you know, the equivalent of a grant or a loan yeah. uh, to keep their employees running, I think is, is a good thing for developers. And the terms here seem like they're, they're not as risky uh, as they could be. And that does it for technology news. So let's move on to... Now it's time for a moment of science. So I just want to say off the top, we're, we're obviously going to talk about coronavirus and COVID, but uh, in this going forward, I'm probably not going to cover the TikTok of what's going on uh, because uh, we're going to be in this for the long haul and covering the TikTok is not particularly useful unless there is some real meaningful advance in knowledge at this point. Uh, and I'll get to why in a little bit, but I want to say, I think people kind of know what's going on. And I'll, I'll try to recap stuff that's important, but I think people are aware of the problem, kind of understand where we're at. And so constantly repeating that same information probably isn't helpful. And going over like the new number of cases, the new number of deaths, you can get that from other sources. So I just want to say off the top, um, a couple bits of information for uh, around screeners, because I got uh, some questions about that. There are a bunch of screening tools, like Microsoft partnered with the CDC for one. Uh, Verily, you know, uh, Alphabet Company has one. Uh, but when I think one of the simplest ones that's out there is Apple has a screener that they partnered with the CDC with. It's a simple web form if you feel like you're having symptoms that might be associated to COVID-19. It asks you a series of questions that are um, uh, powered by some intelligence on the back end. Uh, and gives you like really vetted advice on what to do based on your situation. Uh, I'll put a link in in the uh, in the YouTube and and on the site. I think it's a good resource for those that are kind of still in that moment of like what to do if I'm starting to develop a fever or if I I don't know what to do. I think it gave me a lot of calm when I wake up anxious every night with like the slightest tickle in my throat, being like, oh, I have it now. Um, I'm glad I'm not the only one. No. Uh, and then one last thing before I, I talk about something a little different this week. Um, there are a lot of people working on models uh, for uh, projecting 
potential deaths and outbreaks and what's going to happen in this state, what's going to happen in this country. Uh, and a lot of people that are epidemiologists do that. And then there's a lot of people that are not epidemiologists to do that. And there's a lot of question on like why you shouldn't do this. So um, I put this as my Zoom background just now. This is a graph from 538, and I'll, I'll try to link to it. Um, that shows all of the variables that have to go into deciding how to make a uh, a model. And like some of your inputs are like availability of treatments, uh, infectiousness of the disease, uh, some of the public health measures, like the control rates, like the mechanisms for isolation, the location, some of the basic science, like the genetics. All in all, like I just put this on the screen behind me um, just to uh, remind people that Models are super, super complicated. Uh, and there is not a way to model this outbreak in Excel or Google Sheets that is going to be meaningful. And so there's a reason a lot of groups that were used to putting together models like 538 probably aren't going to be uh, because they're, they're not really going to be predictive in a dynamic environment. All right. I want to talk about mental health and coronavirus this week, which is a little bit different. Uh, and then I frankly think it's something that we're not paying attention to enough because we have to understand that this uh, disease is really nefarious in, in a couple ways. One, it's really invisible compared to other diseases that have hit in our lifetime or other disasters in our lifetime. Can't really see uh, the virus out in the world. It's really ambiguous. We don't know how long this is all going to last or how bad it's going to get. Uh, and then the fact is that we're the, the kind of main mechanism that we're dealing with it right now is literally keeping people apart. So a lot of the coping mechanisms people use, like talking to friends and family and just being around uh, people that you trust is impossible for a huge segment of people. So I want to acknowledge this is a big thing. Um, but there's a lot of like research on mental health and pandemics from the past that we should be applying forward. There's a real science here and there's a real knowledge of what works and why it works and how that should be applied to the current situation. Uh, so we know from past pandemics, especially early on, a lot of people aren't necessarily making de their decisions based purely on the information they're getting. They're making it a lot more based on emotions than they would on a daily basis. You know, you can see this uh, represented in the toilet paper hoarding that's going on. Like it literally doesn't make any sense to buy toilet paper. There's no reason for you to be pooping any more than you were two weeks ago. Uh, and, and toilet paper supply is really stable. But people are, are needing to find an emotional outlet for their anxiety and that leads to actions. A lot of times it's counterproductive, like buying toilet paper, but that can be channeled into really productive things. But the important thing is that there is a level of anxiety that exists. Like this doesn't sound like, you know, all that uh, novel to be talking about that the population is anxious, but we really have to acknowledge how omnipresent that anxiety is, especially in children that are not uh, going to school anymore. Uh, and I think there's been a hesitance from a lot of parents, a lot of parents I know, a lot of data that we're seeing, that parents tend to be hesitant to talk about coronavirus with their kids. And that goes contrary to the evidence of how you should treat this during pandemics. 
um, there's a way that we should acknowledge and confront that anxiety because just dwelling in the anxiety and uh, can lead to just more anxiety. And so some of the recommendations are, uh, you probably know what you need to know about this disease, like the behaviors you need to have, like washing hands, avoiding large gatherings, um, following guidelines on social distancing. Um, you probably have that information already, especially if you're listening uh, to this podcast. So at this point, the evidence says more information, particularly daily information where you're like, you're, you're looking at every paper that comes out, every kind of piece of news on, on deaths, or you're following along every story from every hospital ward is probably detrimental to your mental health. Uh, and we have a lot of evidence of that from past pandemics. But I also want to acknowledge that the uncertainty of this time is real and it's stressful. Uh, but we have to just keep putting out a message that uncertainty is going to be with us for a long period of time. Uh, there's no simple solution to that, but in terms of what we have to do to kind of overcome this anxiety and the, uh, and the uncertainty of the time, and we haven't done this yet, especially here in the U.S., we need to start addressing the concerns people have over the long term. There's a lot of people out there that have economic concerns, uh, that have concerns about just sort of their societal makeup, like being able to see, I, I'll just say, I have friends that haven't been able to see their parents uh, and how big of an impact that has on them. Uh, and that acknowledging those concerns doesn't mean shaming people for how they're adhering to social distancing guidelines. Uh, so you'll go on Twitter and you'll see people posting pictures of Florida beaches or talking about this person or that person uh, not kind of obeying it. That's widely considered from pandemic literature as not constructive right now. Uh, we actually need to be doing the opposite. We need to be modeling good behavior and highlighting the good altruistic behavior that's happening in society. Uh, because if we just highlight the bad behavior, we're going to over-index to it which tends to create more anxiety in people uh, and uh, uh, ups the level of uncertainty people are feeling. All of this that I'm mentioning is advice straight out of the American Psychological Association that did a series of webinars about this. Uh, so I think it's important to note that uh, there's some basic messages that you should like really pay attention and to adhere to, like washing hands, staying socially distant. But that message is going to like be received by people depending on their situation in really different ways. If you're somebody that's young and may have just lost their job, you're going to view this in a very different way. So there isn't one mechanism or one message that's going to make the most sense. What uh, everyone thinks makes uh, is going to have the biggest impact is empathy, kindness, and who the messenger is to these people. Uh, so I'm deputizing you. So uh, my friend Liz Neely, who runs uh, the Story Collider, wrote an article in The Atlantic this week, uh, and she threw out this idea. I'm deputizing everyone. You're all science communicators now in the context of this. Uh, and you're not, your job isn't to go out there and uh, give people better information. It's almost the opposite. It's just to go out there and listen to people's anxiety uh, uh, especially close family members, uh, people that you have relationships with, their anxiety, what's going on in their life, and make sure that they, uh, their concerns about this are heard. 
uh, without telling them that the, that there a solution is coming. Like we're going to live in uncertain times for a while. So listening to them is probably the biggest impact each of us can have right now. Uh, and then encouraging and modeling good behavior uh, going forward. Uh, and I'll just contextualize this with a personal story. I went to the grocery store yesterday and I got out of my car and uh, you couldn't pull a pin out of my butt. I was so anxious about going to the grocery store. This is the first time I'd gone since the lockdown went into effect here. And I viewed everyone in that store as somebody that potentially had the disease and I was worried about them coughing or sneezing. Um, and I, I spent, like I was on pins and needles until like this like really kind of innocuous moment where there was a, a, a shorter person who couldn't reach something on a shelf um, and everyone is trying to like keep distance from everyone, but she couldn't get something she needed. And somebody just came along and handed her something off the top shelf. Uh, and it wasn't this big deal. They didn't spend like all this time together coughing on each other where I was worried about their disease. They, it was this like momentary moment of kindness that I think is uh, important. Whether we're going to the grocery store, whether we're like taking a walk in the park, um, just because we're in this situation and we're feeling anxious doesn't mean we can't be kind to each other in these moments. The risk of us getting a coronavirus from those really small interactions where we're not even touching each other, uh, but smiling at each other, being nice to each other, uh, saying like good things and or, or just like meaningfully uh, connecting with each other. Those have big impacts on what we know will be a massive mental health fallout from this, uh, from the confinement. Um, so I'm deputizing everyone that's listening to this to do something like that uh, this week. Find somebody to talk to about what's going on without dwelling on it. Um, but listen to them, acknowledge their concern, acknowledge the uncertainty of the moment, uh, because not because I think that's going to be cathartic to you, I think there'll be some personal benefits, but because the science says that's what's important to get past this over a long period of time. That was a little preachy, sorry, but kind of is, is where I'm at right now. Uh, and if people can't tell, uh, I'm feeling pretty upbeat. Uh, right now. I think there's been so much good news, and we highlighted one off the, uh, off the top about applying healthcare workers. There is a lot of good things that are happening in society right now. There's a lot of realistic, terrible information coming out of hospitals. But at the same time, like I, I think we're seeing, uh, especially here in the U.S. Where, where I live, people come together in ways that I haven't seen uh, for 20 years. And so I, I think there's, there's a reason to, uh, to celebrate those and, and not only dwell on um, uh, the negative that, that is happening right now. You're here. Thanks, Kishore. Snip that out, Kishore. Cut out everything you just said and put it up as a SoundCloud. Yeah, and, and then uh, people on Twitter will be mean exactly. to me about it, but it'll be cool. Oh, no, it's great. <laughs> and then completely echo, the, one of the best things is hearing from folks uh, and friends uh, even from college days, I haven't heard from in a long time um, and reaching out to, to people. And, and even it's, it's a perfect excuse, you know, to even for a, like a two message exchange, just to reconnect with someone that you haven't talked to in a long time. 
Uh, not, I don't want to get too nitpicky or pedantic, but just to add to the advice in addition to social distancing and um, uh, I just want to add, don't touch your face. Don't touch your face. Very important when you're out and about, don't touch your face. A lot of people are, are now suggesting wearing masks, not as a form of protection, but as a reminder to, to not touch your face, just to train yourself for a week or two. Yeah. yeah I want to build on that just really quickly. Uh, not touching your face is super hard to do. I think we all know that at this point, but it's a habit that we can build in. And it's a habit that we're looking to do for the next year. Like we're not talking about don't touch your face for the next couple of weeks till we get over this hump. We're talking about don't touch your face until like 2021. And so like that is, uh, and it's fine to slip up, but I mean, uh, the reason where like all those messages come out and they're simple and to the point is because they have massive uh, implications on personal health. So like crazily, I'll just give, uh, I'll, I'll try to find the, the chart and put it in the, in the YouTube comments. Uh, we've seen a massive decline in many different diseases with the social distancing. And it's not all just because of like a decline in traffic and vehicular um, uh, deaths. We're seeing such an increase in hygiene um, and our separation has seen a decline in normal flu. Um, and so like this behavior has big consequences just to our daily life. Uh, so if we walk out of this with men washing their hands coming out of public bathrooms, like it'll be a victory for humankind. <laughs> that says a lot about the sad state of affairs before all of this, if people weren't doing that already. But I guess that was very true. Arms folded into your sides. That's the new neutral pose. Resist touching your face by folding your arms. Harumph. All right, let's move on. Thank you so much, Kishore. Once again, uh, a voice of reason as always. The VR Minute. Virtual reality this week. I thought we were going to keep it short this week. Well, that's long, what you very said. Very long. I know. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, then we will wrap things up relatively quickly. Hey, Jeremy, have you finished Half-Life Alex? I have not, Norman. I, I played more of it. I played more. Uh, yeah. Where are you right now? I think I'm at the point where you said I was going to get you. Okay. I got to the point where the name of the level is the name of the bad guy that you encounter. Oh, and Why? you stopped. What's it called? Fred? Why? Jeff. Jeff. Why would you stop playing a Half-Life game? Are you, you're Jeremy Williams. You Dude, love Half-Life. I don't even know what you're talking about. First of all, when Half-Life came out, I had just played Ocarina of Time. And so I was not the biggest Half-Life fan in the world. Like I appreciate all that Half-Life brought to the table and it's a phenomenal game, but I don't think it's the greatest thing ever done. Uh, I liked, I love, I actually think Portal 2 is, is the best game in the Valve catalog, but I like Gabe, Half-Life. Gabe would say so as well. I've, I, I've played all the Half-Life games. I think it's incredible, like incredible scenery and world development. Like it, it has a sense of realism that nothing else can touch. Um, and I think Half-Life Alex is one of the best VR games ever made. Absolutely. But they have made a horror game. Like this was not advertised. This was not a part of your preview that you did when you went to visit them. They have not made like a standard first-person shooter. This is a straight-up horror game. It is the scariest game in VR I think you can possibly find. 
Is no, that fair? I, I disagree. Really? I think the level you're on is one of the scariest levels in, in any, across any VR game. But I, I think to call the whole game a horror game would be a reductive statement. I think there are many levels that have horror elements. And I do think that the level you're on specifically right now is explicitly a horror level. Yes. Um, with Stranger Things influences mm-hmm. and amazing, crazy kind of particle effects and things that take good advantage of your hands, being able to cover your face and your hand, your yeah. eyes and stuff. Uh, you got to push through it. Oh, I will. I will. But when I got to it, like it's, I didn't stop at the beginning of that level. Like yeah. I, I, I did well. Like I got to the point where, can I say? Uh, let's, can, you, can, you can say... <laughs> you use oh god this is a spoiler free words. spoiler free right now <laughs> no no, no. Look, you can you could say one you could say the describe the environment like the room you're in it it, it is uh it's a vodka plant yes, it's a vodka yes. like distillery like a manufacturer and obviously there's it's uninhabited except for a bad guy um and and, and, and you know maybe there's somebody else but the the, the point is there's a bad guy and the bad guy you can't kill with with your gun apparently like he just deflects bullets who knows why but probably for a gameplay reason not for any like fiction reason and, yes i was gonna say is the scare like jump scare kind of stuff or is it scary because it invades your personal space because those are like two dif- very different okay, kind look, of modes I- Look, if you don't want to know anything about Half-Life Alex, just don't listen for the next minute cuz let me I'm going to tell you like a little bit about what goes on here. Okay? Two minutes. Oh god, your your voice went out norm. Um yeah. Uh so you you basically you get to this level and there's a bad guy who can't see you but can hear you. It's you know, it's the typical uh horror trope. And so you're surrounded by these vodka bottles, you can throw them and the bad guy will run over there, right? So um it's fine as long as you know you don't get near him because you can't kill him um so i uh, thankfully like locked him away where you're supposed to lock him up and i thought hey i i did it i like, got through this point norm was going to say i couldn't handle it, and i handled it and uh then i'm like i turns out i'm at the beginning it tur- like it, something happens all the lights go out i thought my computer crashed and then like goes going and like a little bit of like emergency lighting comes on and uh, what it is is I've got my own flashlight like that turned on because it's light sensitive and now I, ha- I know he's going to get out of that freezer and I have to walk around in pitch black with my flashlight and I- I'm going to have to like throw bottles on. he's probably going to get up in my face and I'm going to have to cover my mouth so I don't make noise it's like freaking me out this is a 10 out of 10 scary game I mean I- I- it would be one thing on flat screen but in VR like how did they know people could handle this like this is seriously intensely scary Playtesting. They did lots and lots of playtesting. Uh, hopefully, my voice is it's better. Pitch. It's better. Okay. Uh, again, we're still in little spoiled territory. It's not the worst. It, it gets worse, Jeremy. Oh my god! But not not for too long. It's it's funny. I I replayed that level um, two days ago, and if you know what to do in that level, yeah, it's a breeze. I bet. I bet. You, I mean, if you know the thing you're supposed to do, the actions, the sequence of actions, yeah, it's still scary. And a lot of it is that visceral reaction of being in the dark and having this character with an amazing surround sound. It's coming at you, and it can kill you, right? And if and if it gets right, it does get in your face, Kishore. It gets right up to you, um, and it's a horror. It's a crazy, creepy designed character lumbering around. Uh, they didn't use the microphone. Like they didn't have it, so you personally had to stay quiet, <laughs> right? Like you had to alert it by. 
interacting with the environment to, to lure it around. But if they had made it where they tapped into or you know, gave you the option to tap into the index's microphone, yeah, and you had to actually like you know, not make a sound while playing the game and not like curse, because I was cursing the whole time. Like, and every hope that time, nobody else in your room makes sound either, by the way. Exactly. Right. <laughs> that would have been taking it to a whole new level. Uh, but that is the, by far the, the scariest part of the game. And it's not over, but push through it, Jeremy. And once you push through it, if you play it again, it's a breeze. I'm thinking about like I can't, maybe not playing it at nighttime, right? Or maybe having someone else in the room like, just so I can stay in touch with reality. Are you, you going to tell your wife, can you uh, sit here while I play this VR game? That's what my son <laughs> so did. So I'm not alone. I got to say, like, I do think there's something to Will having played it on Twitch with an audience to experience that with that would have been somewhat comforting. Like, you feel really isolated in VR. You f- and you're there. You're present. I mean, there yeah, are... Ha- yeah. There having, are, having a spectator, I think, helps. There are experiments that have been done to people playing VR where the experiences that they have, the memories that they have, are encoded on some level as real-life memories, like unlike traditional video game playing. Like, I... When I say this is scary, I don't mean in the sense that like it's a movie. Like it is, it feels like I'm in in danger. <laughs> hey, let's try something. Let's try some pandemic risk communication. Uh, Jeremy, yes, this sounds really really scary. It is, sure. Thanks for understanding. <laughs> uh, but a way to get over it. And I don't want it to go far as to say you can get traumatized by playing this, but the way to get over it is to get through it and then play it again because then it won't be scary. I imagine the developers, like, not it's just a mechanic to them at, at some level. Like, once they go through it so many times, it's just like they know how it works and it's just polygons moving on a screen. Yeah. And, and, and it's really that the, the, all the things they're throwing at you that cognitive load of turning off the lights, of, of you having to essentially solve a puzzle while this is happening that creates all the tension yeah the first time playing it i was you know it felt like half an hour just kind of running around because i didn't i didn't know i was supposed to put him in the locker i didn't make the connection that i need to put him in there and lock the door and so i was moving that the um the the valve wheel yeah and i was throwing bottles in one direction and then trying to turn as fast as I can. <laughs> no, and then no, you no. get close and then and i did that for like a dozen times oh wow thinking i was trying to like it was a timing thing yeah. and that was super stressful, but yeah, the, the, and the, that's the memory. Like I have it very viscerally, you know, um, burned into my brain now, uh, but going through it a second time, I think really relieved me of that. Um, there's some, a lot of fun videos people are putting up about Half-Life Alex, things they've discovered. Uh, there's a fun series called Half-Life Alex Mythbusters that someone has put up testing the various things you can do. Can you capture the pigeon? Can you wear a head uh, crab on your head? Those are good. Can you melee and kill head crab with objects by throwing things at them? And it turns out you can. If you throw enough things at them, you can actually kill not a zombie, but a head crab. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's just like, and, and can you carry, you know, bins? And how many things can you put in a bin before it breaks the game with a physics engine? Uh, people have kind of broken Russell's initial tutorial where he throws you a, a pistol and throws you a, a magazine because you can actually trigger him to throw you many magazines. They might patch that. They might not. It's a way to stock up the ammo. And you don't have to the use them? You don't. You just kind oh. of have them and you can actually just store them all. You can have like 590, I think, is the limit that you see wow. on your readout. Um, or you can just type in the cheat code, you know, impulse 101 will get you through. Uh, but yeah, it's still, it's, I, I think we're hearing a lot of people who are still 
getting through the game, so I don't want to talk too much about it. But uh, I implore you, Jeremy, finish. Oh, it. I will. I will. I will. I mean, I can't wait to see this story resolve. Yeah. Um, a couple more things. Uh, Tilt Brush is now on uh, PSVR, and in fact, Sony has a PSVR uh, bundle with the Move controllers and Tilt Brush, and so uh, it's it's a tough way to recommend because. Uh, you know, PS5 is coming out, and while they haven't announced VR for that, you know, investing in PSVR now, even though there's a good library of stuff, just makes me like feel like it's not the right time. You know, it's it's almost like it's between generations. Yeah, wait till what yeah. they what they do with PSVR for the next PlayStation. Mm-hmm. Um, the Vive uh, Cosmo Elite now has a, a SKU that's just the headset. So you have existing Steam VR trackers, and you want to buy, and you can't get the index, and a lot of people are. You know, unfortunately, eBaying, eBaying Valve Index headsets for twice or three times the original cost because it's in such high demand. Uh, the Vive Cosmos Elite is an option. 550 bucks, you do get a copy of Half-Life Alex, and it is just a headset with the seam tracker, not the inside-out tracking um, that you can use with um, your Vive Wands or if you have the index controllers, the next controllers also. Um, our buddies over at the uh, Slow Mo Guys, they uh, launched uh, a VR 180 video series uh, on Oculus TV. And it's, uh, if you haven't seen it, super cool. I think you should watch it. Uh, I actually just did an interview with Gavin over at Slow Mo Guys that we'll put up at the end of the week as part of projections uh, where they talk about uh, filming with uh, a custom phantom high frame rate rig for 3D video. How is the video uh, quality? Amazing. There's some really? things you can see in there. It's, it's, um, it's still not full field of view because they zoom in. It's kind of like watching slow motion in a, in a theater, uh, but watching fire effects, watching, they do the inception bathtub scene where they drop um, Dan into a bathtub uh, and all the water coming out at you in, you know, very, very slow motion uh, is, is super, super cool. And it's just streaming. There's no app to download. You just put on your quest and load up Oculus TV. Uh, and then finally, a Rec Room uh, launched a subscription program, Rec Room Plus. So $8 a month, and you get every month a $10 equivalent of tokens and uh, delivered by week. And you get a, a mystery box to open every week and also a 10% discount on the Rec Room stores that accept tokens. Uh, so it's for people who are very hardcore Rec Room users. Yeah. No, no special content. Uh, no, but, and I'm glad they didn't do that. Also. Yeah, me too. Keeps a even even barrier for everybody. Uh, Lies Beneath came out today. The game from Drifter. It's on uh, on Quest, and it's a survival horror game. So I'm sure I'll be right in there. I can't <laughs> wait. Can't wait to yeah. play it. It actually looks really good, and I will try it. I will try it. Uh, horror just works really well. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You're isolated, and you can't close your eyes, and it's um, all around you. you. You guys should also do The Room, uh, Dark Matter yeah. in VR. Um, I'll be talking about it in projections as well uh, and, and probably won't be spoiling the puzzles, but showing some footage there. But it made me want to go back and play some of the, the Room mobile games. Right, they The Room mobile versions. games are incredible. They're, they, they're some of the best mobile games uh, that exist. They are, but after playing in VR, I felt like the touch interface and the flat interface didn't do it for me 
Oh, come on. It's, no, the, those, those mobile games were made for touchscreens. Like, they, they, were, they, are, they are, and they have some great like, touch attributes, but the end, like, it just felt slower. Okay. I just wanted to get around environments faster as opposed to pinching out to zoom right. out. Zoom in. I, I feel like people will be expecting a single um, you know, escape room cube or object that is a giant puzzle box. And that's not what this game is. No, 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 no. It's, it's a whole, it's a bunch of different environments. And it's yeah. fun. The, the best thing about it is that when I'm thinking about the puzzles, I'm in the environment. And that's the escape room feel. It's not that you're walking around. Right. It's that like, as opposed to holding up, like, you know, if I'm, if I'm stuck on a puzzle and I'm playing it on the iPad or phone, I can kind of distract myself and check Twitter. But when I'm in headset, I'm like, literally, there's like a time distortion element to it. I feel like I'm there for a long time. I'm just like standing there, arms folded, thinking about a puzzle. And that feels like being in an escape room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that does it for the VR Minute. Uh, do we have time? Do you guys want to talk about Picard for five minutes or so? Of course. Let's do it. Okay, let's do it. It's our final Picard spoiler alert discussion. Kishore, you, I, and I, and Ariel did talk about the finale, so that's an episode off-world if you want to listen to that. But Jeremy, you finished Picard. Let's hear your thoughts. Oh, right, because you guys have already kind of talked about it. Um, uh, 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 (laughs) This is the sound of somebody trying to find something nice to say. I see. I, I knew that you hated it before I saw it. Um, so that I had that going into that lowered my expectations. Um, I, I, I felt like I was happy. To, would you guys give me credit for being right about Picard t- being the Gollum? Yes. I, got I think everything we said last week on the show, we were right in some way yeah. about our hopes and expectations. Okay. So, so basically, um, and we are full spoiler territory, right? Um, yeah. uh, I got to dinner last night. And no one else has watched this series with me. And yet they're huge next-gen fans, okay? And particularly, we have big data fans in my family. And I sat down and I said, so I, yeah, I just watched the last episode of Picard. Um, you know, data was on it. And they said, real data or, or fake data? I said, well, real data. He was encoded. Uh, he was in a simulation. And uh, Picard saw him because Picard died. <laughs> and everyone was like, what? What? What are you talking about? I said, yeah, 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 he died. But they brought him back as an android. Uh, and they said, what? I said, yeah, yeah, they brought him back. And um, um, yeah, oh, Riker showed up with a whole fleet of Star- Starfleet and, uh, and saved the day. And everyone was like, what? So on the surface, like, I think this was a really great episode. Like, I think on paper, it certainly is a good pitch to my family at the dinner table. Like, they wanted to know all about it. But um, it, it, I don't know. It just, it felt like they, they could have, it didn't need a whole season. For all of this to happen i was thinking about this as well i think there's a next gen edit of this right where you could edit down just pieces from the first episode pieces from the seventh episode where he goes to Riker and some of the other maybe callbacks and tighten up that entire journey to basically make one 45 minute or hour long special that gets you everything right. i wanted <laughs> out of this being a return to next generation I'd be willing to to make it into a two hour episode, but yeah. not much more than that. Uh, I'm still stuck on a phrase uh, Norm said uh, on Offworld, uh, the introduction of techno space Cthulhu, which is just how I feel this whole thing was was run. There's you have to like explain that, that to me. Um, oh, it's, it's when the, they 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 sent the beam up to the admonition, and you had the tentacles come out, and that's all we saw of it, and that was the big right. bad. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's the new Borg, I guess, right? Who knows? Who knows? I was I was sad that they revealed that at all. Like I liked the idea of this other race as being a mythology, of being, you know, a religion that androids have. I thought that was more interesting than a beam that opens up a portal. To see tentacles. To clearly yeah, to clearly something like bad and evil. Like it didn't even have to be that. Like it could have been more ambiguous. Yes. Completely. So I I watched the episode again because I was like, maybe I just didn't get it. And then (laughs) like I was even angrier and like the stuff that kind of that you know we talked about on offworld and elsewhere was kind of the main plot point to this but then when you delve into like the details like did i just watch like rios and rafi just all of a sudden like welcome narek back into like uh it's as a good person like instantaneously they're like yeah okay cool we're we're good now (laughs) yeah he I, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't quite sure about that. Um, I would, I think it's a missed opportunity that he, that Picard now doesn't have superpowers. I, why not? I mean, clearly they could have. He could have had any of the powers that Data had or better. Uh, Mortality. It's it's what makes him human. Yeah. I, I I was saying that I wish Picard wasn't fully Picard, and he had to go on a little bit of a journey to re, to become. Uh, to rediscover his humanity like not like data to human like level of 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 a gap but if Picard was a little more you know robotic I thought that might have been an interesting way to end it and frame out a season two Uh, but no it was just he was just Jean-Luc Picard again I mean you would hope that as they're formulating season two right now the existential crisis that new Picard has, which they have definitely identified as a new Picard. Like where there, Picard, there is a body of Picard that they buried somewhere, right? He should visit that grave and he should reconcile, you know, also with the fact that he is a, an Android now. And hopefully that is a theme for the second season. Uh, but that last 10 minutes of the episode where he is having this conversation with, with data uh, and it's not real data. This is like a shadow image of data. Right. It's still in many ways it's a projection of Picard's relationship, but he gets the closure that way. It was the consciousness of data extracted from B4 that data uploads at towards the end of Nemesis before data kills himself. So data, the data in the simulation does not remember dying. Exactly. And it also doesn't, isn't like a, it's, isn't a, a self-actualized being. This is like all the, of data's feelings and all of data's memories that he felt, which is so Picard can finally say to this ghost of data, you know, that he loved data. Yeah. Uh, that was very sweet. And that's why it's very appropriate that that data did die. Um, and Brent Spiner said, that's the end. That's the, the fitting end of data. He may come back as, you know, as, as a Sung um, in the next season, uh, which would be great to, to see him back in the show, uh, Brent Spiner. But I think it was the best, it was a better ending for the data character than it was for Picard. Yeah. Is that fair? Totally fair. Totally now fair. I really want to see Guinan Guinan in season two, because that could be an interesting dynamic of Guinan relating to Picard, but he's not Picard. And who better than Guinan to drive that sure that kind of narrative, or to bring back Troy and see if she can sense anything or what she senses? Nah, I'm good. Oh, really? See, for <laughs> me, uh, she was good in in the in this run, but you're never going to convince me that I need more Troy. Sorry. Huh. Oh, wow. See, I, I felt like that was the best episode of the whole 
season. And, totally. And if I, I came out of this wanting one thing, and that was a whole new series called Riker. <laughs> Get out of Jonathan Frakes, Riker. Yeah, Riker and Troy. Yeah. Yeah. I love how, you're right. I loved how much more confident and sharp and just everything, like he was so much more mature and just filled out as a, as a human being. Uh, loved Riker in this. You're right. Yeah, and he brought the swagger. You know, he was on the, the, the Federation's best equipped ship, not because <laughs> of the vessel, but because he was the captain. Uh, you know, the only thing missing was him doing one of those uh, step over the chair to sit in it. That's right. He had the lean. He, he had the Riker lean, the casual lean. Yeah, yeah. Lots of things to nitpick. Um, I really hope someone does an edit of this. I might, I might, if, you know, there's time in the quarantine. I might do a, a secret edit. You know, it's this. not a failing of acting. I think that the cast is really good and the effects are great. I think it's got to find its footing. It's entirely possible the second season could be really good. It's entirely possible. I think there's I, just a mismatch between what the creators of the show wanted the story they wanted to tell and what fans kind of had built up and yeah. wanted to see. Yeah, but I think the word edit is right. And, and not just like editing down what we saw, but literally editing the amount of, of characters and stories they're trying to push to the center of the table. Because when you look at like the stuff that is unresolved out of the season, it's like the Borg. Like why were the Borg even characters in this arc? Did we ever get much resolution with Romulans and their mythology? Like there was whole swaths of characters and storylines that really never paid off. And uh, it, so editing is definitely what I want to see in season two, but purely from a writing standpoint. Did I get that, that Raffi and seven of nine have a relationship at the end of this? That's what was implied. And I think that's something that will be explored in season two is what Michael Chabon said. Okay. Uh, apparently that all happened in the time between after Picard died oh. and when, and when they got back on the ship, some time has passed. Got it. And, and seven of nine is now a regular cast member. I, I hope so. Yeah. Jerry and, Ryan's great. And, and is the evil Romulan guy, is he on the ship now? Nope. He is mysteriously lost. He will <laughs> probably come back as a recurring villain. Okay. Uh, I mean, they're building this for multiple seasons. They had to leave these threads dangling. But again, yeah, I think we've said enough about it. Um, and we don't have an outro this week. Uh, so if you out there want to create a new outro, uh, maybe put it in our Discord. Uh, there'll be a link to the Discord if you want to join uh, or put it in the forum. You can search tested uh, raw outro file and then download the SoundCloud and then edit some funny quote in and put it and we'll put it, uh, post it and we'll put it in a future episode of There's Only a Test. Uh, thanks for listening, as always. Good to see both of you, as always. Yeah. If listeners actually try like reaching out to people, uh, like I mentioned in Moment of Science, let me know how it goes. Uh, reach out to me, DM me, uh, whatever. Um, I, I want to hear how your journey is going. Kishore, sure, do you, do you have a uh, Moment of Science Discord channel, by, by any chance? No. I don't, oh. I mean, I don't the... know if I'm ready for it. Okay, okay just checking, just checking. I'll, I'll, well, I will have open a... ideas. I can have a pinball channel. If anybody wants a pinball channel, we can chat. Solenoids and pinball history. That, that sounds good. <laughs> All right. Uh, and good to see everyone. Thanks for listening again. And we'll see you next time. Bye.